Hello there, welcome to MA Fight Club. I'm your host, Manny Galarza. Today we're in the full card for UFC Fight Night 49 with the main event featuring Islam Makachev versus Bobby Green. We'll go over each fight, one fight at a time, give you our favorite picks to win each fight. And of course, we'll talk about the background of each fight. We'll go deep dive in, talk about who got stabbed and who got robbed and who got raped and who was on crack and who died and who came back to life. All that good stuff. It's right here for you here at MA Fight Club. With that said, Join us for the ride here. We'll go over each fight one fight at a time. Start with the prelims. Work our way all the way through the main card. If you like the content, like and subscribe. If you don't like the content, give us a thumbs down. If you really don't like the content, go to the comment section and just tell us how bad we are at this. Here we go, guys. Let's jump in. All right. Next fight in the card is going to be a flyweight bout at 125 pounds between Victor Altamirano, the Mexican fighter, and Carlos Hernandez, the Mexican-American fighter out of Illinois. Hernandez is 7-1 overall, 5-1 in his last five fights. This is a pick -em. He's minus 120 on the money line. On the other side, you can get Victor at plus 100. 28 years old for Hernandez, 5-8 in height with 67-inch reach. He trains at a VFS Academy. Very good gym. We've got a few fighters on this card from VFS. Victor Altamirano, who goes by El Magnifico, which means, obviously, magnificent in Spanish. You don't have to be a brain surgeon to figure that translation out. He's 10-1 overall, 4-1 his last five fights. He hails from Mexico, currently now based out of Texas, 31 years old. 5-8 and how about a 70.5-inch reach. So height-wise, these guys are similar. Reach-wise, a little bit of an advantage there for Victor Altamirano. Now, looking at the topology numbers here, Altamirano is the favorite, getting 76% of the votes, 24% of the votes coming in on the other side for Hernandez. Started breaking this fight down, only watched about one fight for each fighter, so I didn't really go and do a deep dive like we usually do here at MMA Fight Club, but from what I saw, um, I don't know who's going to win this fight. It, it's so difficult to figure out. Both of them have shown poor takedown defense, and then their takedown offense is also kind of squeamish, especially late in the fight. They get a little tired. These guys are smaller guys, so it's kind of weird to see them get so tired. Now, ironically enough, they both fought the Data White Contender Series. I don't think they got a contract, either one of these guys, because they won by split decision, both of them. And this fight right here, I think, is going to also go to split decision. Unless, unless Altamirano can catch Hernandez with some kind of a, a nice kick. Altamirano does have a nice kicking game. It's kind of exciting at times. It's also a little reckless. And I think what's going to happen here in this fight, takedown and position control will probably win the day. So I imagine striking-wise, going to be very similar. Both guys have similar output. you got a southpaw here in Altamirano versus Hernandez. Hernandez just switches stance constantly. He's going left, going right, going back and forth. Let's look at the striking numbers here because this is where it gets even more confusing. All right, strikes landed for Victor Altamirano. 6.67, okay, high rate. For Carlos Hernandez, 5.13. So both guys, high output. For shots received for Victor Altamirano, he's receiving 4.87 strikes per minute. So not bad. Again, he's on the plus side, 3.47 for Carlos. So a little bit better defense for Carlos, but it's ever so slight. Now the grappling, here's where it gets confusing. According to UFC's website here, since Victor's averaging four takedowns for 15 minutes and zero takedowns for Carlos, I don't think that's accurate, or I'm not really sure what it's based on because the fight I watched from the Dana White Contender Series fight Neither guy can get a takedown. Matter of fact, they just kept getting taken down themselves. Whichever fighter comes in here and does a little better with the takedown offense probably gets the advantage. In the fight with Carlos Hernandez, when he fought at the NY Contenders for his fight, well, you know, I'll go over that in a second. Let's take a glance at the striking numbers here in the two fighters. For Victor Altamirano, he's landing 6.67 strikes per minute and absorbing 4.87, so not bad. About 7 strikes per minute going out, about 5 coming in. For Carlos Hernandez, landing 5.13 strikes per minute, absorbing 3.47. So both guys are on the positive side. Victor has a little more output. For takedown offense, here's where it gets a little confusing to me because I didn't see this in the fight. Victor is averaging four takedowns for 15 minutes. I don't believe he got a takedown, a single takedown the entire fight in his Dana White Contender Series fight. And when he did go for a takedown, it was like sloppy, lazy, not very athletic. Now, for Carlos Hernandez, he's got zero takedowns per 15 minutes, which makes sense because in his Dana White Contender Series fight, when you watch it, he never gets a takedown. At one point, his opponent slips, he gets some top control and he makes the best of it, gets some ground control and wins the fight, wins the round at least because of that. But takedown offense... Not very good to the fighter. And take out defense, 
they're both at 68%, but I'm, I'm surprised at that because they're both terrible at takedown defense. They just let guys take them down. They show poor defense. They're going for weird positions. Instead of trying to defend the takedown, they're trying to like grab the crotch, trying to grab the ass, just doing different things that just don't work. And you can hear that specifically in the last fight for Victor Altamirano when he fought Data White Contenders fight. You hear Daniel Cormier like, yo, dude, just push his head down. Why are you trying to reach over? Just very poor wrestling practice by both fighters. Now, that kind of makes sense. They're both Mexican base, Mexican American. One guy's Mexican, one guy's whatever, Mexican American. The bottom line is those guys like to stand on their feet, like Brandon Moreno. They want to strike on their feet. They want to box. A lot of pride, good boxing history. So I imagine this fight probably stays on the feet for most of the fight. But if one of the two decides to get a takedown, they're going to get it. Now, from there, it depends on what's going to happen. Does they, do they keep ground control? In the case of Altamirano, he did a good job keeping ground control over Barez when they fought. But again, he didn't get a takedown. Barez just slipped and fell and just messed it up for himself. Victor gets some top control, looks for some submissions, gets some back control, full mount. Can't finish the fight, but he finishes the second round in a very good way. But notably, in that fight for Victor Altamirano, he got taken out, I think, every single round in that fight. Let's look at the notes I have on the two fighters here, looking at the background information I have on Victor Altamirano. 4-3 and three as an amateur. Started off his pro career 6-0. He was 9-0 in LFA, which, you know, that's not something to be ignored. LFA is a pretty good promotion. His only pro loss was in 2019 in WXC with a rear naked choke. Well, whatever, it could happen to anyone. He's never been finished other than that, just a rear naked choke one time. He went pro 2017, he's been a pro for five years. He won a Dana White Contender Series last year by split decision, did not get a contract. That was against Carlos Candelario. I do believe he won, but man, there's an argument for he could have lost the fight too. His most notable opponents to date, he fought Nate Smith in 2020, triangle choke, he won that fight. Now, Nate Smith, not a household name, but he did fight a Dana White Contender Series and lost, and so, you know, I think that's the peak of his career so far. For Carlos Candelario, he beat him, 2021 split decision win, and that was again on Dana White Contender Series. The things I like about Altamano, excellent winning percentage, right, obviously. He's only lost one fight. He averages about four takedowns per fight based on the stats. I didn't see that. If he does that here in the fight, he probably wins the fight. And he's got a positive striking output. Also pretty light in his feet, very athletic. Cardio seems to check out over the course of the three-round fight. My concerns with him, he got a split decision win in Daniel Contender Series. You know, that suggests to me that like he's kind of halfway a UFC, UFC fighter and like half not a UFC fighter. Because one judge thought he just lost, right? So consider that. Limited finishing ability. He's been a decision in four of his last five fights. And he's also fought very limited competition up to this point. So when you see a guy going to four decisions in five fights against lower level competition, at this point in his career, doesn't seem to have finishing ability. One last thing about Altamirano. He ducks his head and his shoulders. Like if a guy's going to come and kick him, right? Instead of him maybe blocking the kick or adjusting, he just kind of bends down. And sometimes he bends down right towards the strike. So if he sees a kick coming to the side, he thinks he's coming for his head, he'll duck down. He'll get hit right in the head or his shoulders with that kick. Same thing, he'll duck down when a guy's punching to the body, and he'll get hit. It's a really weird, quirky habit where he drops his shoulder and his head to avoid shots. And sometimes it works, the kick goes over his head. It's a dangerous move. At some point, he's going to duck down into a knee or something, and that's going to be a fatal flaw in that fight. Now, as for Carlos Hernandez, he fought LFA, Titan FC, and HFC prior to the UFC. He went 1-0 in LFA and 3-0 in HFC. 13-2 amateur career. That is something that I noticed here too. So he has a lot more fighting experience, a lot more mixed martial art cage experience here than Altamirano. Went 13-2 as an amateur, as we mentioned. He lost two of his last three amateur fights, so that was a weird thing to me. So he goes 15 amateur fights. You think, okay, maybe get a loss or two in the beginning. No, he lost two of his three last amateur fights. So kind of a weird way to finish your amateur career. He lost his pro debut in 2017 via decision to Gustavo Ballart. I don't know who that is, but that was his pro debut. The most notable opponents for him, he's fought Trevor Wells, 2020, won that fight by decision in LFA. And of course, he fought Daniel Barrez this past year, Daniel Mike Contender Series, where he won that fight via split decision. So both guys have fought 
similar level, similar caliber of opponents, and both guys came out of the Dana White Contender Series with a split decision win, which is like barely by the, you know, my chinny chin chin. <laughs> Some things I like about Carlos Fernandez, his positives. He's an active fighter. He fought once last year, twice 2020, and three times in 2019. He's on a seven fight winning streak. He hasn't lost a fight in five years. Been a minute. He does switch stances constantly, and for the guy who he's fighting, that could be confusing. He goes left, right. It's fluid for him. It doesn't seem he has a dominant hand, and that's nice in a matchup like this when he's going to be fighting a southpaw, so he can adjust pretty easy compared to a guy who's just right-handed. The concerns I have for Carlos, he's got a split decision win again, so he's not definite, you know, getting that opportunity, going in there, didn't finish the opponent, kind of, again, half in, half out, just like the other guy. He hasn't faced tough competition either. He got taken down in that fight, in the Data White Contenders Series fight, twice in round one, once in round two, again in round three, he couldn't stop the takedowns. Now, he wins the fight, and he's lucky for that, but he could not stop takedowns. At no point in the fight could he stop takedowns, which is which is what I'm saying. If Victor Altamirano gets at least a try to take down or two, he should be able to get it against this guy. I'm not sure he's going to do that, though. In the second round of that fight against Bades in the Damon Contender Series, he got cracked. Like, he was a little hurt, and he got lucky because Bades slipped and fell, landed on his back, and that's how Hernandez ends up on top of him getting a full round two position control. He kind of got lucky in that fight. There's no way to put it. He got a little lucky. He didn't really win the fight. It's like he just didn't fully lose the fight, if you know what I'm saying. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched the, both of these guys, Dan White Contender Series fight from last year. Both those fights and both those links are in the description to watch those on your own. I'm not going to spend much more time on this fight. This is the first fight of the night. I don't suggest you wager too hard on this one, right? It wouldn't make a lot of sense. There's a lot of unknowns. It's a lot of variables. We're going to get answered after the fight. I'm going to lean, though ever so slightly towards Carlos Hernandez. And the reason being is number one, I think that the kicking style of Victor Altamirano, which is, looks nice, it's flashy, it's amazing, it's gonna get him off balance. And I think Carlos, if he's smart, will look for a takedown and take him to the ground, get some top control. Victor Altamirano is a good fighter, but he gets off balance, gets a tiny bit wild. And at plus 105 and minus 125 respectively, there's really no side here that's gonna be more generous to you if you bet. But if I'm just picking who's gonna win the fight, I think Carlos Hernandez was the fight. I believe the slight more experience also in the cage, you know, having him fought a few more professional fights, that's one thing. But then the amateur record, 15 amateur fights plus the 12, plus the 11, I'm sorry, uh, pro fights. That's almost double the amount of Altamirano. I think that's a factor here. He's a little bit tighter of a puncher. When I see Victor Altamirano, the kicking is beautiful. It's nice. It's exciting. Spinning kicks. He does it really early and often. Lots of kicks, but it's it's wild. It's not it's not on balance. He, his, his legs are all over the place. So we'll see what happens here. I'm looking forward to seeing what these guys both do because the reality is they're both kind of, like I said, half halfway in the door, halfway out the door because UFC and because Dana has so many freaking events right now, they got to pull these guys up, even guys who didn't really earn their contract. I'm happy for them. This is going to might be a make it or break a situation. I'm not sure if they're going to be on one one fight contract, these guys. This might be a, like a do or die situation. And if that's the case, maybe we get the most of them. Maybe they come out here really thirsty and we get a nice battle and somebody gets finished. But my fear is it goes to split decision. And at that point, you just not you don't want to hold the ticket at all. I'm going to put this in my lottery parlay. I'll put Carlos Hernandez in the lottery parlay. Otherwise, I'm not touching it. Maybe the fight goes a distance. It's a good prop to look at, which we'll talk about in the Pick and Poison prop show. Anyway, guys, good luck with this fight. If you're betting on it, maybe you know these guys personally. Let me know if I'm missing something. And uh, as usual, take advantage of the free video library. Thanks for joining us here. And please like and subscribe. Deuces. Next fight in the card, Ramiz Brahamaj versus Michael Gilmore. Not going to go into details here. Ramiz Brahamaj will win the fight. I'm a little surprised it's only minus 365 because honestly, this should be like around minus 1,000. We're in the Islam Makachev range. This poor child here, Michael Gilmore, coming in here. I'm not sure who paid him to come in here and get his ass whooped, but Ramiz Brahamaj coming in off of a little bit of a rough patch, got his ear torn off. Remember that fight against Griffin? Like his ears hanging off of his freaking head. 
He comes in here, resets the button, gets the win. Like when you're playing Xbox, you just reset, new game. I didn't lose that game. That's what happened right here. Ramiz Brahimash rolls through Gilmore. Now, you can't bet it straight up. At minus 365, you're not going to get much value there. But I will tell you this. Parlay it with a lot of confidence. Ramiz Brahimash will probably finish this young man in within two rounds. Not a fair play. Now, next fight the card, Jonathan Martinez versus Alejandro Perez. I can give you arguments why Jonathan Martinez should win the fight. Should win the fight. At minus 240, 14-4 record against a plus 185 on the other side, Alejandro Perez at 22-8-1. These guys are the same person. I mean, 20 years old, 32 years old. Entrim gym, by the way. Alejandro Perez is training down in Entrim gym with the likes of, you know, Moreno and these guys. Good gym. The bottom line is this, this should be a pick -em. I saw the plus 185 money. I'm like, listen, Jonathan Martinez has showed chin issues. Not very durable. I'm taking Alejandro Perez. It's not a dog or pass. I'm betting him straight up. I'll take something light, not too aggressive. Maybe like a quarter unit, 25 bucks. We'll see what happens here. I'm going to parlay him into my lottery parlay. He'll be in there. He'll be at the bottom of the ticket, but the point is he'll be in there. I just don't trust Jonathan Martinez the same way I don't trust Ignacio Bahamundes. This minus 220, minus 240 range, minus 250. On guys who've been inconsistent recently, three to the last five fights, not very sure. Just don't like that. So if anything, you want to pass, just pass. Like, you know, pass or pass. Don't choose any spot. But if you're going to bet on it, the plus money never is going to happen. These guys are very similar. To me, this is like a, again, the same guy. Jonathan Martinez, Alejandro Perez, same dude. Let's break down, guys. Let's move on. Here we go. The next fight in the card is going to be a lightweight battle at 155 pounds between the American fighter Terrence McKinney and the French fighter Faraz Ziem. Ziem goes by Smile Killer. He's 12 and 3 overall. For one of his last five fights, this fight's a pick him at this point where you got Terrence McKinney at plus 100. On the other side, you got Ziem at minus 125, minus 100, depending on your book you're looking at. He's 24 years old, 11 months, about to be 25. 6 foot 1 and 175 in treat. He's out of Icon MMA. As for T Rex, he's 11 and 3 overall. For one of his last five fights, out of Spokane, Washington, but originally from Chicago, Illinois. 27 years old, 5 to 10 in height, with a 74 in treat. He's out of Warrior Camp in May. Age-wise, these guys are very similar, about two years apart. Height-wise, that's where it would be the biggest advantage there for Zium. About three inches in height. Reach-wise, about the same. Looking at Tapology's numbers here, McKinney is clearly the favorite right now, according to the public. And that's probably because of the recent fights where he's finishing people in seven seconds, 15 seconds. The guy is quite exciting. About 80% of the votes coming in for McKinney, about 20% coming in for Zium. I agree. I like McKinney to win the fight. Try to explain to you why right now. Look at the striking numbers in the two fighters. Terrence McKinney's landing 1.73 strike per minute, absorbing 0.58. Nice ratio, not very busy, but I think that's in part because his fights just end so damn fast. Now, as for Faraz Ziem, he's not very busy either, but his fights tend to go to decisions, so kind of questionable there. He's landing 2.13 strikes per minute, absorbing 1.67. So positive ratio, but watching him fight, you kind of would think that he'd be busier. He gets into these lulls at times, Faraz Ziem, where he's like backing up, not engaging, and just not throwing very much, and the numbers obviously speak to that. Looking at takedowns now for Terrence McKinney, he's landing 4.33 takedowns for 15 minutes. On the other side, you got Ziem landing 0.33. So you can see right there, Faraz Ziem is a stand-up fighter, kicker, striker, whereas Terrence McKinney, more of a grappler, takes the fight to the ground. He does have a wrestling background, which we'll talk about. Now for takedown defense, Terrence McKinney actually has 0% takedown defense. Kind of interesting. And for Faraz Ziem, he's at 68% takedown defense. Now having watched Faraz Ziem fight, he reminds me of Bahamundas in the fact that he's taller, longer, but actually does a pretty good job sprawling. Does a good job of denying takedowns. I've seen him with body locks on him. He slips, slides down, has long legs. It's hard for the guy to pick him up. He's got long legs. You see what I'm saying? He has to be the taller fighter. Now, let's talk about Terrence McKinney. Some background information on him. It's story time here at MMA Fight Club. So, Terrence McKinney, if you know his background, just fast forward at this point. But if you don't know, 
He's about to leave to go off to college, you know, got a scholarship, full scholarship, actually, Division II school for wrestling. And he's like all excited, hanging out with his buddies, decides, you know, a little acid, a little tripping, I just, I don't know, a little cocaine, I don't know, just throw a little death cocktail for me out there. And the fucking dude loses it. It's on camera. It's it's a pretty uh, disturbing situation. The cops arrive. Like he's basically shirt off, shirts off, pants are off. He's barefoot. He's like in a backyard. It's disturbing to watch. He's basically tripping and he's having a horrible trip. You know, he's sweating. He's hot. And the cops are trying to engage with him. And shout out to that police department because that police department handled that situation very well. They could have ended up killing this guy. He was not cooperating. He was being very wild. And people that are in that mode of, of, of being on those type of drugs and they have already strength like he has. He's a wrestler. They can be very dangerous for anyone to deal with because they have that like extra strength, the crazy strength, right? Anyway, they end up being able to subdue him, like get him in handcuffs to take him um, in, the, in the cop car. All his friends left. They left him there. That was a really disturbing part of the story. Like they just kind of left this dude here. He's having a terrible trip hanging out at a party, whatever. They take him into the ambulance, and he dies. Three times. His heart stops three freaking times. They have to resuscitate him three times. Obviously, he survives because he's fighting this weekend. Now he has not only, obviously, you know, learned from the experience and taken from that you know, appreciation of life, he's spoken with local youth in his community. He's partnered with that same police department to do videos and talk to people. Um, they've met with him. They've thanked him for his appreciation. He's thanked them for, for saving his damn life. But the story is one that many people have been through. Maybe you know someone who's suffered with substance abuse. I've had friends and family that have suffered with substance abuse. I even had a friend last year who overdosed, and fortunately, the Narcan brought him back. So if you're living in the United States or probably anywhere in the world, you know someone, six degrees of separation, has probably su suffered with substance abuse. In this case, Terrence McKinney was very young, about to go to college, and almost died. So it was a life-changing experience for him. Since then, like I say, he's been a vigilante fighting for, you know, um, not fighting for, but he's been a person who's been outspoken, you know, promoting the the uh, the benefits of staying sober and being clean and obviously the dangers of getting into these situations like he did where he literally died. So that's his background. He did go to college, wrestled at Northern Idaho, I believe, for a little bit. Decent background, good wrestler, wrestled in high school. He's 2-0 in LFA. Both of his LFA, LFA fights, he finished them. He lost on Contender Series in 2019 via Sean Woodson. He got finished in round two via KO. And that's a theme with him. Even though he's got a lot of finishes, when he loses, he gets finished too. <laughs> He's a quick finisher in a good way. Kind of get my drift there. Quick finisher. Quick. Uh, anyway, let me move on. He finished first his first four MMA fights of his career. And I want to mention this because I heard a capper today that I respect a whole bunch. I'm not going to name him by name because that would be rude. But I heard a capper suggest today that this, this recent phenomenon with him is a quote-unquote phenomenon. That he's knocking people out recently. That is not true. He knocked out his first ever fight in amateur in 15 seconds. He knocked out several guys. 2016, 2019. Three, four years ago, he was knocking people out in seconds. This is not a recent phenomenon. He's been finishing people quickly for a while. Now, is it a KO power phenomenon? Still, no, not a phenomenon there either. He's been submitting people and KOing people quickly. Let's talk about it. So here we go. He finishes first four MMA fights, three of them within two minutes of the first round. Okay. He's got a seven-second KO knockout over Jeff Coleman 2019, a 43-second knockout in round one via rear naked choke over Teron Spain 2019, a 16-second round one knockout over De Dedrick Sanders in 2021, He's a 17-second round one head kick knockout over Gavin Ho in 2021. And, of course, the seven-second knockout last year, round one over Matt Frivola. Those numbers don't lie. The guy is quickly finishing people. He's very aggressive. He gets up in the face, and he doesn't mind getting hit. I mean, guys fucking died a few times. What is he scared of, right? The cage is what is he going to do? Die in the cage? No one's died in a mixed martial arts fight in UFC yet. Knock on wood. The last four fights for this guy combined, combined, has lasted a total of one minute and 52 seconds. Less than two minutes. For four total fights. The dude is effective, gets to the point, he pushes the pace. That's why he wins the fight. It's not because he can knock people out. It's the pace. 
Okay, I'm going to talk more about that. The pressure he puts on. His most notable opponents, he fought Sean Woods in 2019, lost via round two TKO. He also lost round one via uh, choke against Derek Miner. That was before they were in the UFC, but decent opponent, someone that we know of. And of course, Matt Frivola last fall. I'm sorry, not last fall, but last year, 2021, where he knocked him out in seven seconds. I do want to put a side note there on Matt Frivola. He fought again after that, did pretty good. He won his fight, but in that fight, he just got clipped. He got caught, and uh, you know he just wasn't ready for it, right? I wasn't ready. Now, the pros I like about McKinney, very active fighter. In 2021 alone, he fought four mixed martial arts fights. So the guy's on it. He's fighting a lot. He wants to get in there. He enjoys fighting. You can sort of see that by his social media, his Twitter handle. He's in it. He loves it. High finish rate. He finished four straight wins right now. So he's coming off of four straight wins where he's knocking people out and submitting them. He's looking to do the same thing here against Faraz Zim. My concerns for Terrence McKinney, it's all or nothing with him, right? It's like winner go home. I'm leaving. all. He's pushing all the chips to the center of the table, right? House, putting the whole house on him, right? The problem with that is, you know, sometimes that could be dangerous. And over the course of a career, that could either lend to him losing some fights that he shouldn't lose. He's going to have to sort of reel it in at some point, especially when he fights higher level guys. You can't just go at all these guys. They're going to counterpunch you, wrestle you, put you in bad situations. He has faced okay competition up to now. I'm not sure which guy has faced a better competition, but it's been okay. Regional scene. Granted, he's finishing guys in UFC, but he hasn't really faced anyone, you know, very tough. I would argue, though, that this would be the same competition he's been facing. Like, Faraz Ziem, to me, is not... An amazing guy uh, or amazing you know fighter amazing competition he's just kind of okay he injured himself after the frivola fight and i want to point this out because he's young you know he's making strides he's improving his life i love hearing him speak he's you know a person who's very grateful have a second chance at life but in the fight against frivola he does that thing that johnny walker did if you don't remember i did the breakdown last week with johnny walker johnny walker dislocated his shoulder one time after a fight celebrating for Terrence McKinney, after the fight against Frivola, yeah, seven-second knockout. He's amazing. Jumps on top of the cage, does a backflip or whatever, and, like, hurts his knee. I don't know the extent of the injury, but it looked pretty nasty. He could barely walk. I'm not sure what happened. Hopefully, it was just a sprain. But it was, like, a low IQ moment there. Like, settle down. You got the win. Relax. Don't go hurting yourself. Now, as for Faraz Ziem, some background information on him. From France, his parents are actually French and Algerian, which makes sense. That's why I guess a little bit of the color there. A little more tan than the typical French person. His father's a former pro boxer, so it runs in the family. His stepfather is a former BJJ practitioner. Both brothers did Muay Thai. So it's all in the family here. Combat sports is something that's been around him for a long time. He actually got into combat sports at the age of 12, began with Muay Thai, kickboxing, and then from there, from there sort of grew into mixed martial arts. He went pro 2014, been a pro for about eight years. The most notable opponents for him, he fought Jamie Malarkey, won that fight 2020 by decision. And then Don Madge, 2019, lost that fight by decision. The things I like about Faraz Ziem, great length, great, you know, great size for this division, long legs, long arms, can pick guys apart from distance. I mean, it's it's right there for him. If he uses his jab, circles, he could win a lot of fights that way. Excellent jab, as I mentioned. He defends takedowns pretty good, especially for a tall fighter. I mentioned before, like him and Bahamundes have these long bodies, but when they sprawl, again, wrestlers will tell you the, the tall guys can be very unique to fight against or wrestle against because they do have these weird angles and leverage. If a tall fighter sprawls and gets those legs back, it's so hard. Imagine this, the guy who's now trying to shoot on those legs, it's harder to get to them. But they're just farther away. He's freaking long legs. He's got good footwork, likes to circle his opponents, uses his footwork to set up strikes and also to avoid strikes. My concerns with Faraziem, he's not very active. That's another thing I didn't like about this. He's in the same age range as McKinney. McKinney's fighting four fights a year. This guy's fighting once a year. He lost to a low-level Chinese fighter via decision in 2016. One of those guys from like China who's like, whatever, 25 and 12 and very okay. He lost that fight. Two of his three losses were very low-level opponents. So in his in his career, he's got three total losses, but he's lost against two guys that were just you know, very questionable. He tends to run. And this is my last point here on Ferozium. Uh, how do I compare this? I used to be a fan of... Well, I'm still a fan. I used to I used to love Macho Camacho. I'm dating myself. So back in the 80s, Macho Camacho was a boxer from Puerto Rico. I'm Puerto Rican. I'm like, yeah, you know. I love the guy. I love the style, the swag. He had the little tail in the back. 
I had a tail when I was like, oh my god, that was so 80s. Anyway, I loved watching him fight, and he was flashy and exciting. But as I got older, I did come to terms with the fact that he ran a lot. Like, he ran. I mean, just that's the way to put it. Like, he ran. My mom, my dad would watch fights with me, and they didn't want to, like, tell me all the time, like, you know, your boy here, he runs a lot. No, no, that's my boy. I would, like, defend him all the time. Faraz Ziam runs. Like, full. And he might as well just turn and just, Forest. Like, he is running. Watch the fight against Vendramini. In the fight against Vendramini, I guess he believes that he won round one and round two, which I guess he did. He looked pretty good those two rounds. But it was kind of close. It wasn't like he completely, you know, outshined. But I guess he felt like it was okay. In round three, Vendramini is, like, getting tired of what's going on. He's trying to push pace. He clocks Faraz Ziam a few times. And Faraz Ziam is trying to run. Like, the motherfucker is running. He's running so much that he's tripping on the cage. He's like, I can't get out. I'm... It was a terrible look. And quite frankly, it wasn't the first time I've seen it from him. And I expect to see it on Saturday. He's going to fight a guy here in Terrence McKinney who has no chill. Doesn't give a fuck. I wouldn't want to fight Terrence McKinney. The dude's been a dead already a few times. He's going to come push pace and pressure, which is all he knows how to do. No technique. I don't give a fuck. Just coming right at you. Promise for SZM. He doesn't know how to deal with that. He hates that, actually. He's going to just start running. He's going to run. As he's running, McKinney's going to throw some crazy leg kick or whatever, probably clock his ass, and at some point, either Faraz Ziem tries to run and jump out the cage <laughs> to survive, or he gets caught. So look, this is a terrible matchup for Faraz Ziem. For Faraz Ziem, I can't believe the money line has him as a pick'em. I'm like, ooh-wee, I am all over McKinney. Now, look, any given Sunday, right? So Terrence McKinney, could he come in there and throw a head kick or something, get wild, get out of control, and then get knocked out? Yeah, he's been knocked out. He's been finished. Matter of fact, that's one of his Achilles heels. He tends to get finished, not lose by decision. This fight most likely does not go to decision. If, it, if it's a win for, for Asiyah, then it probably goes to decision. But I just don't imagine that for Terrence McKinney, a guy who's like, I've got nothing to lose. I'm going at 100%. He's going to push the pace. And I think for Farazian, it's going to be uncomfortable. He's going to be trying to back up. He's going to be trying to run. And quite frankly, how do I say this without sounding mean? I don't like fighters like that. I don't like that. I don't like guys who are running. Like, I mean, Floyd Mayweather, for example, amazing boxing career. I never enjoyed that shit. I'm not sure about you guys. I never enjoyed watching Floyd like run for 10 rounds. And, you know, yeah, technique is amazing. Oh, he's good. oh, you can't hit him. Oh, he's bopping. Like, just come on, man. I want to see a fight. Like, you know what I mean? I want to see somebody fight. I want to see somebody get hurt. No, I want to see somebody like get critically hurt, but I want to see action. And so for, for Ozzyam, I don't know where he goes from here. Maybe he wins the fight, but this guy is never going to get a main card. He's never going to be a staple of the UFC. He's always going to be just one of those guys out there just like doing okay because of the way he fights. Now, he is talented, yes. And he is plotting from a distance. And he's got great jabs and great strikes. He does. I'm not sure how much power he has, but the fighting style is a bit annoying. Okay, and I expect at some point in this fight, especially if he thinks he won round one, for example, oh my god, he's running in round two. Like, he doesn't want to engage at all. So it's a bit of annoying to me. I know I kind of beat a dead horse there. I just want to put it out there. If you're putting money behind for, uh, for SZM, be cautious here because he's the type of fighter where he's not going to fight. He doesn't want to fight. Averaging one fight a year. McKinney's, McKinney's in there four times a year. Just two different mentalities, you know? And for McKinney, again, he's fought for his life. It's just different, you know? As for the films we watched, the fights we watched to break down this film, we watched McKinney versus Frivola, seven seconds. McKinney versus Ortiz, which was like 15 seconds. McKinney versus Gavinho, 2019. And then ZM versus Benjamini and ZM versus Madge. Now, ZM lost the fight against Madge. It was similar to the Benjamini fight in that, you know, whenever Madge pushed the pace and pressure and got in close, ZM wasn't comfortable. ZM's not comfortable working in close quarters. He wants to be at a distance. This fight is going to be in the apex. It's going to be in a smaller cage. Just keep that in mind. He's going to have a harder time running away from his opponent here. The last few notes I have in the two fighters to side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, they're about the same. you got 12-3 for ZM, 11-3 for Terrence McKinney. It's a good matchup. IQ, I want to give Terrence McKinney a higher IQ rating. Excuse me, because of all the finishes, but the jumping off the cage and hurting your knee, you know, not great. For Ozzyam, he's running. 
both guys are about the same IQ rating, a lower level IQ rating. They belong on the prelim card at, the, as, at this point in their career. As for cardio, I don't know what Terrence McKinney looks like in round three. He doesn't go to round three. He's a round one type of fighter, and that's it. Now, he does have a wrestling background. He's an athlete from, you know, from the past. I believe his cardio should be up to speed. Faraz Ziem has looked great in round three from the standpoint that he's not tired. He's still running. He's on his bicycle. So I don't see any cardio issues arising in this fight. Finishing ability, I think we know who's got the better finishing ability. I'm not going to you know, go over that. We know Terrence McKinney's a much better finisher. For boxing, yeah, Faraz Ziem has the cleaner boxing. There's no question. Cleaner boxing, longer arms, better combinations. But power-wise, there's no question who has the more power here. And last but not least, grappling. If it gets to a grappling situation, which I don't know that it does, Ferris is going to stand on his feet. He wants to be on his feet, not on the ground. But if somehow Terrence McKinney can catch him off balance and get a takedown, that would be nice for Terrence McKinney, especially if he's looking to get some ground and pound action or he's trying to win a round in a key round where it's like close. That could be a key point in the fight. Again, he's a former college wrestler, has the wrestling background, whereas for Azim, Muay Thai base, kickboxing base, standing up very high, very long fighter. The thing is, though, ZM comes into this fight with the idea that I'm going to be technical. He's going to fight just like um, another French fighter, uh, Gagne, right? You know, Cyril Gagne comes in there against most of his heavyweight opponents, and he's like trying to point win. He's trying to win fights by points, and that's okay, whatever, to each his own. That's the way Farah ZM fights. Maybe it's a French thing. You know, they want to win by points, like touching, touching. That's not the style Terrence McKinney fights with. Terrence McKinney's trying to finish you. And so in this fight, you've got the points fighter, a Cyril Gagne type of fighter, Versus a guy who's just a full-on pit bull who's coming at you to just chop your head off. I like Terrence McKinney here. I never understood why he was plus money. And most people will tell you they, they agree. I don't know why it was ever plus money. This is a pick em, I guess, at this point. That's okay. I just think Terrence McKinney at this point is the better fighter. When the fight is over and Terrence McKinney like takes his kid's head off, people are look at this fight like, oh my god, I can't believe I didn't put more money on McKinney. Now, I'm not going to put the house on McKinney. I'm not putting the mortgage payment on McKinney. But I'll parlay him a little bit. I'll definitely take at least a unit, unit and a half straight up on him to win on the money line. I like him to win the fight. I like him to finish the fight. I think Faraz Ziem is literally going to jump out the cage and run from him. As usual, look in the description below. You'll see fight links there for prior fights of the films we talked about because we do full breakdowns here at MMA Fight Club. We don't just tell you, oh, I like a guy. I think he's going to win. Uh, he's a good... No. We do breakdowns. We look at film. We give you a thorough breakdown of what we're seeing. And look, you could disagree with us. I want your feedback. How can we be better at this? And if we're off and the fight comes around and Ziem kicks his ass, come on back over here and let me know that I was damn wrong. Good luck with this fight. All right, women's bout. Featherweight division between the Brazilian Josiana Nunes and Ramona Pasquale from Hong Kong. Pasquale is 6-2 overall. 4-1 her last five fights. A dog here at plus 180 in the money line. 33 years old. 5'7 in height with a 66-inch reach. She trains out of Syndicate MMA. Now, she was prior, prior to Syndicate MMA. She was actually at the UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai. She left because she couldn't get fights. Not because of anything else. It was a good training program, everything else like that. But because of COVID and travel restrictions, she couldn't get fights. So she decided to pick up everything, move halfway around the world. Now she's based at a Syndicate. So clearly she's willing to risk everything, right, to get to where she needs to be, which should be noted. She's willing to put her, all her eggs in one basket. Josiana Nunes from Brazil, 8-1 overall. She blasted onto the scene in the last fight against Bay Malecki, where she knocks out Malecki in round one. Very good punching power for this small female fighter. 5 in her last five fights, minus 220 in the money line. She's a favorite here. 28 years old, 5'2 in height, so 5 inches shorter than Ramona Pasquale. Ramona Pasquale, if you watch film on her, she's a, she's a big girl. She's a big girl. You know, 5'7", you know, pretty thick Overall, well-balanced weight for Josiana Nunez. Even though she's shorter by five inches, she has a one-inch reach advantage. Looking at topology, the numbers are coming on the side of Nunez. 90% to be exact, only 10% coming for Pasquale. I like Nunez to win. I think what we have here is a bit of the unknown for Pasquale. There's some film on her. There's a few links there if you want to watch some film on her prior fights, kickboxing matches, some highlights of her last May bout. It's it's shoddy, guys. I, I really question the, the caliber of fighter that she's been fighting in the past. And then on top of that, you know, she's making a big move, new camp, new training program. 
put it this way. I have my concerns about, you know, if she's up to speed yet or if she's a UFC caliber female fighter at this point. We're going to see. This fight will be a kind of interesting sort of take on whether or not she's ready for this t type of challenge. Now, looking here at the background information of the two fighters, Nunes is from Brazil, 1-0 amateur career. She fought for Katana and Fours FC prior to the UFC. Signed with the UFC last year and made a splash in her first fight by knocking out Bay Malucky in round one. She won her UFC debut in that fight. Her most notable opponents, uh, she doesn't really have any because Bay Malucky would have been her toughest opponent. And that was, you know, a, a lower level UFC fighter. And that goes for both fighters. We just don't know much about these guys. They haven't fought very high competition. But at least for Josiana Nunes, she does have a UFC win. The biggest benefit for Josiana Nunes, the one thing that I have to acknowledge that she does amazing. She throws heavy, hard punches. Now, they're off balance. Technique isn't great. They're looping. They're wild. But she's a pit bull. She wants to come there close. She wants to throw hard punches. And those punches are pretty hard for this division. I believe at some point here, she just tags Ramona. At least lets Ramona know, listen, I'm coming in here aggressive. I'm going to hit you with something that counts. My concerns for Josiana Nunes, same concerns that I would have for Ramona Pasquale. We don't know much about her. We haven't seen her face better opponents. We haven't seen her have to go like to round three. If you look at her prior fights before the UFC, it's very low level competition to be nice about it. And so we just don't know quite what she's made of. What we saw in that first fight is that she pushes pace. She goes forward. She's confident. Doesn't mind taking a few punches. When she hit May Malecki, Malecki was already backing up. Malecki was already getting tired of their forward pressure. So if Josiana does that here in any of her fights against female fighters in this division, she probably will be successful unless someone can clip her or bring her to the ground or submit her. So my concerns are very light. I just don't know much about Josiana Nunes. I don't know what she's capable of. I don't know if she can deal with ground pressure, which she probably shouldn't face here against a taller fighter. But pretty much the book is still out on her. We don't know. As for Romana Pasquale, she did make a big commitment here. She did pick up a move halfway around the world, which sort of says mentally where she's at. If you follow her on Instagram, her boyfriend, who's from China, came over, visited her in Las Vegas. She's trying to keep it all together. You know, she's halfway around the world. She's from China. So I do give her the fact that she's made a big commitment. She's got a six-year pro career, went pro 2016. She fought in Invicta, Icon, and WLF prior to UFC. And so the Invicta win, that's probably maybe her most quality win. But again, the opponents, who she fought, just hasn't really fought anyone. And some of the film... Matter of fact, there's a film link there. If you want to watch her prior fight in like a kickboxing match out in uh, China, man, that opponent was so bad. And just look, unfortunately, you're only as good as who you surround yourself with, right? Now, being at Syndicate MMA, that's going to help her, right? Around better fighters in a good training program. Is it enough? She hasn't shared the cage in a competitive format where she's actually going against someone who's notable. So a lot of questions here on both fighters, but at least I know what Josiana Nunes, she has punching power and she's aggressive and we've seen it. The things I do like about Romana Pasquale, She's coming off of a round one KO win in Vecta over Shamir Peshawa, which is still a round one win in a women's bout. Got to give her that. Her last three wins were via KO or submission, so she has some finishing ability. Again, who are the opponents? Uh, you know, but still, she has three straight KOs. The concerns I have for Mona Pasquale, I'm not really sure about her durability. She was KO'd and submitted in lower level promotions, and these are female fights, so looking at that topology, it's like, who's beating you up and finishing in a women's bout? So she has been KO'd and she has been submitted. She lost to Janae Hardy in 2017 via round two ground and pound. Harding is one in four in her last five fights. That to me was a glaring issue. Janae Harding, no offense, but you know, not Tanya Harding, but Janae Harding. Yeah, she, she lost to her. That, and that girl is now one in four in her last five fights. She has faced very, 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 did I say it? Low, low, low competition. So look, you're only as good as who you surround yourself with. The reality is here, we just don't have a lot of film in her against good opponents. I put together some film links here of some spotty coverage on Ramona Pasquale. If you look at description as usual, you'll see our, our links there as part of our film library. Some of it's spotty, it's not great film, it's kickboxing, whatever else. And then, of course, the prior fight with uh, Maleki and Josiana Nunes is also in there as well. The last few notes I have these two fighters side by side. Experience-wise, I give them both a very low rating. Not because they're not good fighters or not smart, it's just they haven't fought very much. You got 6-2 and two for Pasquale at the age of 33. It's like only 8 total fights. 
a little alarming. At 20 years old, for Juliana Nunez, she's on a better track here, having fought at least nine fights, but both of them have fought under 10 fights. If you fought less than 10 fights, I'm putting you in the low category for experience. No offense. Fighter IQ. I haven't seen anything in the ring that would make me, or Octagon, that would make me suggest that they're stupid or making bad moves or not being, you know, you know, uh, technical. But I don't see much, and I haven't seen them face other other opponents that are high level. So I'm just up in the air with Fighter IQ. Not really sure who's the smarter fighter. Now, outside the Octagon, outside the cage, I'd say Ramona Pasquale making good moves, right? Smart, moving around, moving over to Syndicate MMA, you know, making the moves that she needs to make to move up in her career. For Josiana Nunes, coming from Brazil, coming from a let's say lower middle class background, making her way now to the United States and fighting promotion. So from that standpoint, they're hustlers. Outside the octagon, they're making moves, they're striding, they're successful in their respective lives. Cardio-wise, again, I don't know. We didn't see either fighter in round three. We don't know what they're capable of. I have to imagine they're smaller female fighters. Their cardio should check out. If anyone's going to gas out, I would imagine it'd be Josefina Nunes because she puts so much into her strikes. I mean, she throws these very big looping shots. If they land, I like Bay Malecki, they're in trouble. But maybe over the course of two rounds, could that be a problem? Because she started to gas out. Could now Pasquale find an arm bar, get into the ground? Mm. Finishing ability, clearly Josiana Nunes has the advantage there. Now, for Pasquale, three straight finishes, right? But look at the film. She's fighting complete cans. At least for Nunes, Malecki's kind of a can too. But at least she knocked out a UFC opponent. We saw it. We can acknowledge it. It did happen. Boxing-wise, there's a chance Ramona Pasquale has the better technical boxing because when you look at Nunes' fight, it's not technical. It's like the Joe Frazier ah, looping overhand punch. If it lands, though, oof, got problems. But power's on the side of Nunes for boxing. Technique's probably on the side of Ramona Pasquale. For grappling, I don't know who's better here, but you know I'm gonna give the edge to the Brazilian. She's shorter, she's stockier. I have to imagine on the ground she's gonna move a little bit quicker than the larger Pasquale. Pasquale is a bit taller, obviously, just a bigger overall fighter and doesn't have that quick twitch muscle. An Asian fighter who's kind of on the bigger side, she's thick. She's thick in all the right spots, if you know what I mean. But the point is, I just don't see her moving very quickly. If the fight gets to the ground, I think Josiana Nunes probably moves a little quicker, gets back to the feet. And of course, she's, she's Brazilian. These Brazilians can all work on the ground, right? They should be. They're born with it. That's the breakdown, guys. I, I don't have much more to give you on here. I wish I could give you some more information. I did a lot of searching on film, trying to find background information. There's not much out there about Josiana Nunes or Ramona Pasquale from what you know, from what I found. I think Nunes wins. I'm going to have her in some parlays. I'm not going to bet it straight up. I'm not going to over parlay it. But I imagine Josiana Nunes comes in here. If she doesn't knock out Ramona Pasquale, probably lands the more notable shots, right? Even if the round is close and maybe even Pasquale lands a few more strikes, I think it's going to be Nunez landing the bigger strike, the more notable strike. And over the course of three rounds, it probably, you know, builds up and we get a win here for Justin Nunez by decision. If not, she clips Pasquale and Pasquale just balls up and can't take it anymore. That's a breakdown, guys. Good luck with this fight. If you're new to the channel, remember, in the video description here, there's the free video library. So in there, you'll find prior links for prior fights that we watched on these two fighters. So you know two things. Number one, you have access to film, watch the film yourself. And number two, we're not just talking out of our ass over here at MMA Fight Club. We watch film, we break down film, we actually watch these fighters, we decipher what we're looking at, we break that down, we'll give you a summary. Thanks for stopping by, like and subscribe. Next up on the card is going to be the prelim main event. It's a lightweight battle between Ignacio Bahamundes from Chile and Zhu Rong from China. Zhu Rong is 18-4 overall, 4-1 in his last five fights, currently plus 180 in the money line. He's 21 years old, 11 months, so about to be 22. 5 foot 9 in height with 71 inch reach. He trains out of American Top Team and also does some training back home in uh, Shanghai at the UFC Performance Institute. On Tapology, it says Enobo Fight Club, but I have not heard anything about him training there. It's been American Top Team and UFC Performance Institute in Shanghai. Now, as for Bahamundes, he's 12 and 4 overall, 3 and 2 in his last 5 fights. A favor here at minus 220 in the money line. He's now based out of Chicago, Illinois. He moved there when he's like 16 years old from Chile. 24 years old, 6 foot 3 in height with 76, I'm sorry, 75 and a half inch reach, about 76. And he's out of VFS Academy. Very good gym. 
So height and reach wise, it's obvious Ignacio Bahamundes is going to be the longer, taller fighter by a few inches in both reach and height. Looking at the topology numbers, Bahamundes is a favorite. 82% of the votes coming in for Bahamundes, only 18% coming in for Wrong. And the money line reflects that similarly. I'm going to dog here, guys. A lot of dogs in this card I like. I'm going to choose Zhu Rong to win the fight outright. It's not a dog or pass. I think he wins the fight. I'm going to explain it to you right now. Looking at the striking numbers here for Bahamundes, he's landing just about eight strikes per minute. Very busy fighter. You watch him fight on film. Fluid hands, fluid legs, a lot of volume, great cardio. He doesn't slow down at any point throughout the fight. Absorbing 5.32 strikes per minute, though. He's absorbing quite a bit of punishment along with dishing it out. For Zhu Rong, he's landing about 4.33 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.63, so about equal output versus input. Takedown offense is non-existent for Ignacio. He's got zero takedowns so far in the UFC. For Zhu Rong, he's averaging about five takedowns for 15 minutes. Does that play a role in this fight? I think it does. Now, for takedown defense, though, Bahamut has got 100% takedown defense. And you watch him on film. He does a great job sprawling and defending takedowns against shorter fighters. And for a taller fighter, it's impressive. You don't see that very often. He does a good job defending takedowns. And I'm sure in this fight, he'll have to use that same technique as well to defend takedowns against Zurong. Zurong's also defending takedowns at 100%. Though Ignacio is not much of a takedown artist. He's more of a kickboxer, striker, long, uses range, keep the right distance for himself to execute his game plan. Looking at the background information of these two fighters, Ignacio is from Chile. He moved to Chicago when he was 16 years old to pursue his MMA dreams. I'm going to beat this up because I want to make sure I'm clear on this one. Here's story time here at MMA Fight Club. He's 35-0-1 in kickboxing. You hear during the broadcast, watch his fight against McDessie. You hear Anik and the other guys like, oh, he's 35-0-1 and and kickboxing. Well, how old is Ignacio Bahamundes, right? He's, he's 24 now, okay? You go back a year or two when he fought those fights. When did he fight those 35 fights? When was it? How old was he? He moved to Chicago when he was 16. He didn't kickbox anymore after that. So when was he kickboxing? I'm asking you this question. When was he kickboxing? I know the answer to it. When he was an amateur. No one's talking about that. That 35 wins he has kickboxing is when he was an amateur, like 14, 15 years old. You know, when people ask me about my athletic background, I don't tell them like, oh, you know, when I was 12 years old, I was state champion in Pennsylvania. Like, no, I talk about how I was a national team member, senior, or how I was a full scholarship athlete in college. Um, how I almost made the Olympic team. Like, that's what I talk about my Jurassic career. I don't talk about how, oh, when I was like 13 years old, I won regionals. So no offense here, but no one should be talking about the 35 and no kickboxing record. It's, it's literally meaningless. Now, even more so, look up the Chile national team for kickboxing. Go on, go Google it. Junior national kickboxing team. Because not senior national team. He was not a senior. He was a junior, amateur level kickboxing. I want to make sure I'm clear on this one. His kickboxing record is almost as, as meaningful as me telling you I wrestled when I was in seventh grade. It, it has no impact here. Now, we watch him fight, good kicks. He has a foundation that does help him as he evolved to the sport. But this idea that he's an amazing kickboxer, just get this shit out of your mind. That does not exist. 35-0, and 0, kickboxing on a junior level, amateur level in Chile is literally meaningless. It has no input in this fight. I'm going to leave that right there. Drop the mic. Now... 2014, he was the national kickboxing champion in Chile. His father was a former kickboxing national champion, so he got it from his father, kind of, you know, born into it. He's 1-0 as an amateur. He fought in Titan FC, Lux, and LFA prior to signing with UFC, and he was 1-0 in LFA, which is a decent promotion. He went pro in 2015 at 18 years old. He won a Dana White Contender Series in 2020 with a round two front kick versus Edson Gomez. Nice, flashy kick. Kickboxing, kickboxing. <laughs> he lost his UFC debut versus McDessie, and that fight, in my opinion, is... Um, We'll talk about it, but that's a little bit of a concern to me. That guy was much shorter, older, ACL tear, off for a year, and somehow he goes in there and outstrikes Bahamundes and lands better jabs, lasts better punches. That, to me, was a glaring 
sort of issue and who this guy is and where he's at, at this point in his career. Now he's young. That's a big thing. He's growing. He's improving. But right now, you know, I'm selling on this. I'm selling. I'm passing on Bahamunas right now. I don't think he's the kind of guy you want to put minus one, minus two twenty or minus one eighty money behind on any fight at this point in his career. He's a southpaw. And he's got a very effective jab. Now, if Baja Mundes can work behind his jab in any fight, he's a southpaw, he's got the right-hand lead, that's his path to victory. Unfortunately, though, he's absorbing 5.32 strikes per minute. So as he's delivering that jab at a high volume, he's also taking some punches, too. Now, as for the most notable opponents for Baja Mundes, he's not fought many high-level guys, neither has Zurong. He fought McDessie, 2021, lost by split decision. Now, McDessie was coming off, of, as we mentioned before, he's coming off a year layoff, ACL tear, and he had just lost his prior fight against Trinaldo. Then he fought Roosevelt Roberts. He wins that fight with an amazing spinning wheel kick in round three. Flashy knockout, looked amazing. To me that night, Roosevelt Roberts was not up to par. He's obviously been cut by the UFC already. He lost his last three straight UFC fights. And if, I want to clarify this. He did lose his last three UFC fights. It says no contest because he fought Kroom. Kroom choked his ass out, won by submission. But after the fight, Kroom tested positive for weed. We know he won the fight. His last three UFC fights he lost, bottom line, Roosevelt Roberts is not a very good comp not, not a very good competition, put it that way. And when you watch the knockout, I'm gonna get a little conspiracy theory on you. Watch the knockout when Baja Munez knocks out Roberts. There's something really, I don't know, it's really fishy about it. Almost like it wasn't a real knockout. And I don't usually say that, but watch it and you know what I'm talking about. I'm not suggesting anybody took a fall. I'm not no. Just watch it. There's something about that knockout that just looks like it's not authentic. And I just don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it, but something about it kind of stinks. He also has a split decision win over Chris Brown back in LFA 2020. He's been in a split decision, by the way, in two of his last four fights for Rahamunez. Just putting it out there. All right. Getting close. Getting close to the scorecards. Now, looking at the positive like about Ignacio Bahamunez, he has displayed very good takedown defense in the past. He'll need to do that against Zurong, but amazing, amazing for a tall guy. He sprawls very well. He will have a significant reach and height advantage in this fight. At the same time, though, he had that against McDessie, and it didn't really help him. He's very young. He's making big improvements. Both fighters are young, so both fighters are making gigantic strides between each fight, and I expect to see that from both fighters as well. He's been an active fighter. He fought twice last year and twice in 2020. He tends to lead a dance, and that's a very important thing on the scorecards. For Ignacio, even though he lost against McDessie, he was pushing the pace. McDessie was the one circling him. Same thing in his last fight against Roosevelt Roberts. He pushes the pace the entire time. He's bleeding, got some cuts, but he's still pushing pace, still going forward, using his jab. He just played a powerful spinning back kick to the body versus Roberts, which reminds me. Yeah, the kickboxing thing, I have some questions about that and how valid that is. But his spinning back kick to the body, the heel, very impressive. That could do some damage against his opponents. My concerns with Ignacio... He was slightly overweight for the McDessie fight, and he still lost. Like, the guy was older, ACL tear, off for a year. Ignacio Bahumanis was favored in the money line. He comes in there, and he loses against a guy like that. Just saying. His BJJ defense, uh, it's okay. Two of his three losses before joining the UFC were via submission. So keep that in mind. Before UFC, he lost three times, two of those by submission. Zurong is not a submission master, but that's something that in the wheelhouse of Ignacio is going to have to improve in, which is BJJ defense and his ground game when someone takes him to the ground. What does he do there? He cuts very easily. This is one of my other big issues with Baja Mundes. He cut first round against McDessie, and you're like, when, when did that happen? Was it one punch? Was it two punches? Three punches? If you hit him four or five times in the face, he's bleeding. Against Roosevelt Roberts, for example, he wins that fight round three. Looks ama He's amazing spinning wheel kick. I mean, spinning, spinning a back kick to the face. But watch, watch the fight. He's bleeding profusely in that fight. That's going to be a problem in a close fight. A close fight where it's like, I don't know who's going to win. 
and he's bleeding all over the place, that's not going to be good. The scar tissue on this 24-year-old is now building up. I imagine that his fight career gets cut short because of this. He just bleeds way too easily, cuts way too easily, and quite frankly, it's just a genetic thing. He can't change that. It is what it is. But he's a bleeder. He's going to be bleeding in this fight. If he gets hit any time earlier often by Zuvarong, he's going to be cut. That's his bottom line. Close decisions, I mentioned before. He has been to split decision now twice in his last four fights. He's not been finishing his opponents lately, so his finishing ability has kind of gone down. Of his last six fights, four of them have gone decision. The books are not accurate on him. So this is my last point on Bahamundes. In his last two fights, the books have been reversed. So, for example, against McDessie, he was favored, and he lost. Against Roosevelt Roberts, he was underdog, and he won. Here's a favorite again. Is that a trend? Are the books not clear on him? Are they inaccurate? Yeah, it's not accurate right now. So, so far, we don't know where he stands at. The main line has him at minus 220. Based on the last two fights, that means he's probably going to lose the fight. As for the Chinese fighter Zhu Rong, he was born and raised in the Sichuan province, which is in southeast China. His parents are devout Buddhists, and so is he. Which made me kind of delve into the whole thing of like Buddhism, right? Buddhism, a little story time here at MMA Fight Club. Here we go, story time. Do you know what a Buddhist is? Do you know what their practices are, what their beliefs are? If you don't know, here it is. They do not believe in any type of violence. Like, no violence at all. Here's a quote from one of their prophets. Even if thieves carve you limb from limb with a double-handed saw, if you make your mind hostile, you are not following my teachings. Like, no fighting at all. In times of war, give rise in yourself to the mind of compassion, helping living beings and abandon the will to fight. During the Vietnam War, you had Buddhists who were called to arms, like, hey, come on, help us fight. And they were like, nope, we're not going to fight. We're not going to fight. There was a story of a soldier like having a gun to a Buddhist head and like, I'm going to kill you. And the Buddhist's like, that's okay. I'm not going to fight. In their religion, in that culture of Buddhism, they believe that you can't harm any living thing. Everything is natural. Peace, love, the monks, that whole concept, the monks in the orange outfits and the kids with the shaved head, uh, the movie with uh, Eddie Murphy years ago, the golden child, that's what we're talking about. That's where he grew up. Ironically, though, he's now fighting in mixed martial arts. So I'm not sure how he deals with the personal like struggle between being a Buddhist and then also being a cage fighter, but um, he's got an interesting personality, Zubrong. Matter of fact, I like his edge in the octagon. Watch his prior fights. He's got some personality. Like he'll ask for the guy to engage with him. A little, you know, he does a little bit of hand gestures. He's got an edge to him, put it that way. So yeah, but he is Buddhist. He fought in WLF promotion prior to signing the UFC. I'm not sure what that is. Doesn't seem to be a high level promotion. He made his pro debut in 2016 at the age of 15 years old. The dude's 22. He's fought like 100 fights already. No, kidding. But the point is, he made his pro debut at 15. Was fighting grown men in China back then. He signed with the UFC 2021. He's 1-1 in the UFC. He made his UFC debut in 2021 against. Rodrigo Vargas and lost that fight in large part because of volume. That's one of my big concerns with Zuvrong. Round one, like he just didn't put the put the pressure on the guy. Didn't use a lot enough volume. He just took too many strikes. He wasn't hurt. Just a little bit of a low fighter IQ moment where he's not using enough volume. He wins round three in that fight, but round one and two he just didn't do enough. Didn't pressure the pace. Didn't try to get takedowns. Round three starts landing some shots. Shows good cardio. Takes Vargas down to the ground. So a little bit of a slow starter. He has trained, as I mentioned before in the past, at the UFC Institute in Shanghai, but now more recently, he's now out of ATT in Florida. He's a right-handed fighter, so right-handed stance, which would be an adjustment for him against the left-handed southpaw in Bahamundas. Most notable opponents for Zhu Rong. He fought Brandon Jenkins, 2021, won the fight, round three TKO via ground and pound. Not much of a test, and no offense to Brandon Jenkins, but he had just come into the UFC. It was his, per his first UFC fight. He was definitely outmatched. Zhu Rong... Probably wins that fight 99 times out of 100. It just wasn't a really good matchup for Brandon Jenkins. And maybe Brandon Jenkins comes back and gets a better opponent. But for that fight right there, 
Zurong just had his way. Now against Rodrigo Vargas, 2021, he loses the fight by decision, and that to me was a fight that Zurong could have won. He could have won it. Just didn't follow a good game plan, didn't put enough pressure, got himself in some guillotine situations he had to break out of, and you know, maybe round two could have gone either way. He definitely wins round three. Two of the three two of the three judges gave him round three. But round one and two just didn't do enough. You know, he could have won the fight, but he lost the fight. Now the things I like about Zhu Rong, he does have KO power. Does he knock out Bahamunas here? I don't know. Bahamunas showed a really good chin. Got clipped in round one against McDessey, but has showed a pretty good chin. He does have twelve knockouts though for Zhu Rong. He's been very durable. Never knocked out himself. But he has been submitted three times. Does Ignacio submit him here? Probably not. Though Ignacio is a long fighter, kind of like Joel Alvarez, where he's got that length, and so a standing guillotine is always a possibility when he's a taller fighter against a shorter guy like this. Nice left hook and close. His left hook is probably his most lethal weapon. When you watch Zurong on film, he likes to use it often. Remember, he's right-handed, right, right? So he's got a left-hand lead. When he wants to throw that left hook, he's kind of in close and will just swoop like this. He did land it a few times against Vargas. He tries it, you know, often. It's there. Will it hurt Ignacio? Maybe. Maybe it'll hurt him. I don't think it knocks him out. But the point is, that's his most lethal shot. Now, he does throw heavy hands in general. I think he has, has more punching power than Ignacio, but Ignacio has more volume. He has a bit of an edge to him, as I mentioned before. When you watch Zurong on film, he has like, this, like American attitude about him. Like, he's from the Far East, and, you know, the Buddhist thing, you're thinking, like, oh, must be a conservative, quiet guy. No, no, he's got this, like, like Nate Diaz quality about him. Like, you know, asking guys to come on, like... After the after the bell rang against round one against Vargas, he like stood there like staring at Vargas like you want some dude. So he's got a little bit of an edge to him. I like that. He's got some personality. My concerns for Zurong though, he will be facing a southpaw here. It's gonna be a big adjustment and a southpaw with a lot of length. He got swept by a simple lower leg kick in round one against Vargas. Right? Swept meaning like he got knocked down. I get back up. Ignacio does have some decent kicks. Not because he's a kickboxer. No 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 no. <laughs> but because he uses good kicks, good front kicks, you know, spinning kicks. And decent lower leg kicks. So with Zhu Rong, he tends to stand a little heavy on his front foot. That could be available for Ignacio if he wants to use that. He lacks volume at times. I mentioned before, that cost him round one in the Vargas fight. Round one was like, no one really won that round. It was more like Zhu Rong lost the round. He won round three, but he lost round one and two because he just wasn't doing enough, wasn't throwing enough. And Ignacio, as you can see from the numbers, eight strikes per minute. He's a very high volume striker, almost double the, double the amount of output as Zhu Rong. Now, both fighters have missed weight recently. So in Zhu Rong's case, he missed weight in his last fight. For Ignacio, he missed weight two fights ago. We'll see what happens in the scales. Now, the fights we watched bring down this film, we watched Bahamunas versus McDessie, Bahamunas versus Roberts, Rong versus Jenkins, and Rong versus Vargas. Those four fights, as usual, the fights we talked about, those links are in the description. You can watch those on your own. The last few details I have to talk about these two fighters, the side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, uh, more or less identical. 18-4 for Zhu Rong, 12-4 for Ignacio Bahamunas. Fighter IQ, I want to give an edge to Baja Mundes because I don't see him doing anything stupid in there. Like, he does smart things. He, he recovered well against McDessie when he got hurt in round one. Whereas Zhu Rong, sometimes, like, it's like, hey, dude, you got to have more volume. It's not just out here having fun. You have more volume. So I think fighter IQ-wise, they're very similar. But I have seen at least one or two things from Zhu Rong that makes me question whether or not he's using, you know, his, his brain in there. As for cardio, excellent cardio for both guys. In round three of their fights, they both have looked very, very good. A lot of pace, a lot of pressure. So cardio-wise, these guys check out. Finishing ability... I don't know. I really don't know. I think Baja Muniz's kicks look amazing. The knockout over Roberts is beautiful. If he's spinning wheel kicks somebody and hits him in the right spot, I guess he could knock him out. But I think Zurong punches harder. I think Zurong actually has the KO power in the hands here. Ignacio's not much of a submission artist, neither is Zurong. So for finishing ability, they're they're very, very similar, but maybe there's a slight edge there for Zurong because he's got that left hook. He does punch pretty hard. Boxing ability, hmm, that's what it's gonna be interesting too. It's it's very close here. Ignacio throws more volume. Good technique. His punches are straight down the pipe. 
from that standpoint, I have to give him an edge. The volume alone is the edge in the boxing. Boxing technique-wise, they're very similar. Zuvrung has good technique, but I got to give the edge there for Ignacio Bahamunas. Grappling, I'm going to give a small edge to Zuvrung only because he does have some takedowns here, right? Five takedowns per fight. Does some work on the ground. Has some ground and pound finishes. But Ignacio does a good job of defending takedowns. If he can keep the fight on the feet, he'll nullify that area of the fight. But if it gets in the ground, you got to imagine the shorter, stockier fighter will have the benefit of the doubt on the ground. That's the breakdown, guys, for this fight. This is going to be a tough fight to call overall. I imagine the cappers are going to be on both sides in this fight. Some will like Zurong. Some will like Ignacio Bahamunez. But here's the thing. I'm fading Bahamunez. Um, after watching the last few fights, I just don't think that he's ready right now. I think at 24 years old, there's things in his game that got to be shored up. I think he cuts way too easily. He takes too many punches at times. And I think Zurong, with the right game plan, can take him to the ground, make this fight nice and ugly and close. And close is good for me. At plus 180, I just want close. I don't want to have a minus 20 ticket and it'd be close. Minus 220 for me is two to one favorite. You got to be dominant. Does Ignacio Bahamunez dominate Zurong here? I don't think so. I think we've got Nacho Libre from Chile versus the Dalai Lama here. The Dalai Lama is going to give him all he can handle. At the end of the day, it's going to be close. I imagine it goes the full distance. I imagine it's going to be on the scorecards. You're going to have people tweeting, Oh, Zurong won round two. It's going to be close, guys. It's going to be close. And because it's going to be close, I'm taking Zurong to win the fight at plus 180. A lot of dogs like on this card, guys. Good luck with this fight. Let me know what you think. Do you like the Asian fighter? Do you like Nacho Libre? Give me your feedback, guys. Deuces. <laughs> about your balls. Are they smooth? Or covered in bits of annoying fluff? <sighs> these are my balls. See how they glisten in the light? Your balls can be like these. But you gotta use the right tools for the job. This? No. This? No. This! Only if that's what you're into. Balls are delicate, sensitive, easy to damage. Someone's taking a chunk out of that one. That's why I use the Lawnmower 4.0. It's got skin-safe technology with a replaceable ceramic blade. So you can trim with confidence. It's got an LED light, so you can always see what you're doing. Lights, please! And what's more, it's got a wireless charging system and it's waterproof. You can even drop it in your pint. You wouldn't want to drink it, though. It's got pubes in it. The Manscaped Lawnmower is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide. That's over 4 million balls. Isn't it time you join them and use the right tools for the job? Because when it comes to balls, you don't want to muck about. Go to manscaped.com and check out the all-new Lawnmower 4.0 and receive free shipping. Next up in the main card, we have a middleweight clash at 185 pounds between two action figures, Robocop versus Superman. Yes, Gregory Rodriguez goes by Robocop, and Armand Petrosian goes by Superman. Great nicknames. Petrosian, 6-1 overall. He hails from Armenia, 4-1 in his last five fights. Slight dog here at plus 135 on the money line. 
31 years old, 6'2 in height with a 71 inch reach. He trades out of Academy MMA. As for Robocop, he's 11 and 3 overall, 4 1 his last 5 fight. Currently a slight favorite here at minus 175 the money line. He hails from Brazil, but now based out of Deerfield Beach, Florida. 30 years old, so one year younger than Petrosian. 6'3 in height with 1 inch height advantage, 76 inch reach, about 5 inch advantage there for Rodriguez. He's out of X Gym, and Petrosian is trading at Academy MMA. Looking at the numbers on Tapology, looks like Rodriguez is the favorite, getting about 75% of the votes, only 25% of the votes coming in for Petrosian. I disagree. I like Armand Petrosian in this fight. I'm going to break it down, try to explain it to you. Let's look at the striking numbers of these two guys. Rodriguez is landing just about 6 strikes per minute, absorbing 4.35, so busy fighter, good ratio. For Armand, not as busy, but very good ratio, landing 4.49 strikes per minute, absorbing 1.12. For takedown offense, Rodriguez is adding about three takedowns for 15 minutes. Petrosian, zero takedowns for 15 minutes. When you watch them fight, makes sense. Petrosian's more on the feet, former kickboxer, Muay Thai style. Rodriguez from Brazil, judo background, judo trips, judo takedowns. You'll see it in his arsenal. You'll watch in his prior fights. He gets some nice trips and takedowns against some pretty good opponents. Takedown defense, Rodriguez 100%. Armand Petrosian, 40%. Now, looking at the background information of the two fighters, Rodriguez is from Brazil. He had no amateur record. He went 3-0 in LFA before signing with the UFC. He's married, family man. His most notable opponents, he fought Dusko Tarovic last year, won by decision. He also fought Jung Young Park last year, won that fight round two TKO. And then he lost against Jordan Williams in 2020 via round one KO loss. That's a rough one to watch because Jordan Williams, not for nothing, is a decent fighter, but you don't think of him as a guy who'd be knocking out someone like Rodriguez. And Rodriguez just gets completely clipped, knocked out, like out cold. That was on the White Contender Series. Jordan has lost four of his last five fights. So just again, keeping that in mind, that's a that's a bit, a bit of a rough patch for Rodriguez. Granted, it's a flash knockout, but still, I'm worried that could happen again by the way he fights, by his lack of, let's say, attention to detail. He gets a little sloppy when he gets tired. Moving on. The things I like about Rodriguez, solid finish rate. He's finished 82% of his wins. He finished three of his last four MMA fights, and he's finished nine of his 11, 11 wins in total. Four fight winning streak. He's a very active fighter. Listen to this. He fought four times in 2021 in mixed martial arts, and he fought two times in grappling bouts. So the guy was in the octagon or on the mat six times to compete last year. And here's a little stat for you here on Rodriguez. He fought Dusko Todorovic last year. That was two weeks after he beat Josh Framed. So the guy has no problem getting back in there. He's constantly in shape. Clearly, he's training all the time, ready to go. And consider this, he went the distance with Dusko Throwage. So he showed decent cardio in that fight after coming off of a fight two weeks before where he knocked out Josh Frame in a round one KO. He has excellent trips. His judo throws are awesome. He whipped Park to the ground in their fight. I mean, he's in a battle with, with uh, Jung Young Park where they're going toe-to-toe. -to -toe. He ends up taking down Park with a beautiful judo toss and sweep. Something he could use in his fight because Armand doesn't have a great takedown defense, obviously 40%. If it comes to a point where the fight gets into a grappling mode, that's where Rodriguez could pick up some points, maybe get some top position, just getting a takedown. And again, that looks good in the scorecards. Against Park, I thought Rodriguez showed a pretty good chin. Now, they were sloppy at times. They were both trading, but he took some pretty hard shots. He was able to stay on his feet. He has a significant experience advantage over his opponent in this fight. He's just been in more mixed martial arts fights, and he's fought much more competition than Armand Petrosian. My concern with Rodriguez, is durability a factor? He did get knocked out by Jordan Williams, and he also got knocked out in his first mixed martial arts fight back in 2014. He's only got three losses, but two of the three losses, he got finished. In my humble opinion, Rodriguez is willing to trade too much at times, and he gets very sloppy. As he gets fatigued, his chin is out there. He's just sort of winging back and forth. He's the type of fighter, when you put pressure on him, he's going to try to swing back. He's not going to try to ball up, not going to try to use good defense, not going to slip and move, not going to use his footwork. He'll just stand there with you and trade. Sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. Against Jung Young Park, it worked. Against Jordan Williams, it did not work. He had gotten clipped there. Instead of trying to find like a, a takedown or try to, try to find some survival opportunities, he tries to just trade with Jordan Williams and he gets clipped and knocked out. I'm not sure if Rodriguez has bad cardio. 
It just looks like that sometimes. Now, look at Dusko Tarovic fight. He was that fight by decision. Looked pretty good. But he's got that muscly build, right? His physiology lends towards, like, getting sucked out, you know, getting drained. He looks like that, you know, same cut of, like, Rodolfo Vieira or Misha Serkinov is on his card. These guys are so muscle-bound. And so what ends up happening is you see there's, like, a, a quick dip. And against Jungyo Park, he was in a troubled spot there. And you can see the cardio was not looking good. But he cracks Park. That's his style, right? When he's in trouble, he's just, I'm going to just fight back. That doesn't always work. In a fight here against Maron Petrosian, where Petrosian has much more cleaner, faster striking, I think he's got a better cardio. This fight gets over a round and a half. I think Armand Petrosian is going to be a shoe in to win the fight. No ifs, ands, or buts. He finishes Gregory Rodriguez sometime late in round two or round three, and partially due to a cardio issue, I believe. Now let's look at Armand Petrosian. Born in Armenia, moved to Italy when he was 13 years old. His base is in Muay Thai. He's a 70, 21, and one kickboxing record. I don't want to overstate the kickboxing record because in the past, I've done breakdowns for guys who had glorious kickboxing records and it just didn't really translate. Now I've learned recently the kickboxing organizations, there's so many of them. There's like higher level ones, middle of the road ones, and there's just a whole bunch of them out there, just, just shit ass organizations. And if you have a good record in there, it just it's meaningless. Anyway, he had 27 KOs in kickboxing, two-time Italian kickboxing champion, former WMTA super welterweight champion, which I believe is in Italy. He also did some kickboxing matches for one championship and Bellator. He's got no amateur MMA record. Part of the UFC, he fought AMC Fight Promotion, which is like a Russian, European-based promotion. He won on Dana White Contender Series in 2021 to earn his UFC contract, defeated his opponent via first-round knockout. He's also done some training in Dagestan with some high-level wrestlers in preparation for his fights. Matter of fact, he did that before the Kolev fight on Dana White Contender Series, and you really couldn't tell. He got taken down like five times in the first, I don't know, minute or so. Comes back and wins that fight anyway in the first round with a knockout. Now, the most notable opponents for Armand Petrosian, and here's where it's thin. He fought Kolev, again, Dana White Contender Series, 2021. He won that fight round one TKO. Kolev was coming in there 10-0. That was impressive, but he's a guy who has no UFC experience, coming out of, you know, outside promotions. He also beat Alexander Zemlikayev, 2021, round one KO. I couldn't find the film on that fight, but that guy was 0-0 coming into the fight, and he has no scheduled fights since then. So, you know, again, caliber of competition, kind of iffy. If you go one more fight before that, 2021, Armand Petrosian fights Hassan Youssefi in AMC 102. He loses the fight in round one via TKO. It was a bit of a flash knockout. It reminded me of the way Gregory Rodriguez lost against Jordan Williams. But mind you, after losing that fight by a knockout, and it was a pretty bad knockout, he took a lot of ground and pound strikes before the referee stepped in. Armand steps back into the cage a month later against Alexander Zemelikov, wins that fight 15 seconds in the first round. You like to see the bounce back quickly, maybe too fast after a knockout like that, but he's back in the cage. Consider this. Here's another guy who's very active. He fought four times last year as well. Some of the things I like about Armand Petrosian, he's on a two-fight winning streak. He's a balanced fighter. He's decent on the ground. Maybe better on the feet, but he could fight in both both areas. His striking is sharp. Kickboxing is obviously very powerful. I think he's going to have a speed advantage here, combination advantage. His strikes tend to be a little more straight, whereas you've got more of the looping from Rodriguez. My concerns with Armand Petrosian. Against Kolev, he was just out-wrestled. Now, if a fighter comes in here and tries to wrestle him a lot, that seems to be his kryptonite. For Rodriguez, he can wrestle. He's got three takedowns for 15 minutes, but again, he gets tired. If he tries to wrestle Armand too much, I think he's going to get gassed out. It seems to be the path to victory against Armand to wrestle him, but again, in this fight with Rodriguez, I don't think he's going to have the gas tank to be make that effective. Maybe early in round one like Kolev did, but then it'll fade. Now, let's talk about the kickboxing record. I mentioned before that I'm starting to fade the kickboxing stuff because these records, these promotions, they don't know who they're fighting, yada, yada, yada. Well, consider this. He fought his last few kickboxing matches in one championship in Bellator. 
the last three in one championship, he lost those three. So how good of a kickboxer is Petrosian? Now, granted, he kicked the hell out of Kolev, and it was effective. And he looks good in the mixed martial arts because most guys are, you know, balanced. Wrestlers, strikers, whatever. It's not like he's an elite kickboxer, put it that way. He does not have a win over a UFC opponent yet. He's got low MMA competition in his background. When you look at the competition, clearly Rodriguez has a little bit more competition than you've got here Petrosian. This will be by far the biggest test for Petrosian when it comes to mixed martial arts. For Rodriguez, you know, Park's been good competition. He's fought some okay guys. He's fought guys in the UFC. He's got some wins in the UFC. So he's definitely fought some guys at a little bit more caliber than who Armand Petrosian has faced off against. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Rodriguez versus Park, Todorovic, and Williams. We also watched Petrosian versus Kolev and Yosefi. Those five fights, those five links, as always, as you know here on MMA Fight Club, are in the description. You can watch those fights on your own as part of our free video library. The last few notes in these two guys, they're side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, I'm going to give the edge to Rodriguez for the obvious reasons. He's fought twice the amount of mixed martial arts fights, and he's had some better opponents. But Fighter IQ, I give the edge to Armand Petrosian, and here's why. It's more of an indictment on Gregor Rodriguez. Rodriguez is a pretty good overall fighter, but he gets tired, number one, and when he gets hurt, his survival instincts are just to fight back. That could be a problem. That's what happened with the Jordan Williams fight. That's why he lost that fight. Everyone gets cracked every now and then, but you gotta recover. Let's reference the fight the other day with Onama. Onama, the, the young the young man who won his fight, he got clipped early in that fight, recovered, uses some grappling. That's not really in the arsenal for Rodriguez. Instinctively, he just tries to trade back, and that's what happened with Jordan Williams, and he got clipped and got finished. Cardio-wise, I give the edge to Armand Petrosian. I've seen Rodriguez go the distance. He went the distance against Dusko Todorovic, and I think the long-term cardio for him is not so bad. But in spurts, the cardio becomes a problem. So let's say he tries some takedowns. Let's say he tries a few high-energy output moves. Let's say he throws a few heavy combinations. Then he'll slow down. Then he'll kind of regroup and he'll come back. But it's that slowdown period where his hands are coming down. Body language doesn't look good. Could Petrosian hit with a head kick? body kick start piling up you know on him with combinations so for Rodriguez the cardio is like questionable it comes and it goes whereas Petrosian seems to be at the same level throughout the entire fight finishing ability I think these guys are both equal they have power in their hands they both can knock each other out I don't think either guy is more lethal than the other I think if one guy catches the other guy he's gonna get knocked out look at Petrosian's past fight against uh, Yosefi he gets completely clipped there round one it concerned me because it was early in the fight it wasn't like he took a bunch of shots it was like a one-two combination that led to him getting knocked out just like Rodriguez though I think these guys we don't know who's more durable yet. We don't know who's a better finisher. Boxing-wise, I give a significant edge to Armand Petrosian. I think the power is equal. Both guys can have, you know, not, both guys have knockout power. Issue with Petrosian, though, his things are straight. It's straight combinations. Watch the fight versus Kolev, where he gets wrestled, wrestled, wrestled. They get to the feet, and it's like, oh, shit, this dude can strike. He's fast. He's quick. Eventually knocks out Kolev with a head kick. But the point is, when it comes to striking, Rodriguez is powerful but it's projected. You could see it coming. Whereas Armand, he's setting things up. Nice jab right in the pipe. And that's probably his kickboxing background where he's been working on his strike for a long time. Now, last but not least, the grappling area. This is where Rodriguez does have an advantage. Now, he does have obviously more takedowns in his arsenal. He's got Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and he's a former Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu champion, I guess, in South America. So he's got that in his arsenal. Does he use it? Does it work against Armand Petrosian? Again, he's going to have to have the energy level to do it. And based upon watching them fight, these guys seem to both like to fight on their feet, toe-to-toe, -to -toe, like mano y mano, who's the better man here? I don't imagine the grappling's going to be a big factor. If Rodriguez was to use it, he can get some takedown, position points, maybe look for some submission opportunities. For Armand Petrosian, this is probably the highest level mixed martial artist he's ever fought against, and the guy with the best BJJ skills he's ever faced. So I'm sure he's preparing for that, but on the feet, where the fight probably takes most of the, most of the fight happens on the feet, I think Armand Petrosian has a quickness advantage, speed advantage. IQ advantage, better footwork. He's just quicker and faster. And look, they look the same age, but there's something about Rodriguez that sends that, that sends the message that he's just older. Like he just looks older. So we're on Armand Petrosian to win the fight. He's currently plus 135 on the money line. I'm not sure it moves too much. I think where people like Rodriguez, they know of him more. He's got more experience. I understand why he's favored. It's my theory though. If this fight gets anywhere past like a round and a half, 
The card is going to be such a factor for Rodriguez that I think Armand's going to have a lot of opportunities, both striking just to win one the point, or even maybe possibly knocking out Rodriguez. Because if you put pressure on Rodriguez, remember his instinct is not to ball up or maneuver or get takedowns. His instinct is like if you put him against the wall, he's going to just start fighting back, not looking to do any technique. His head's going to be wide open. But Trojan knocks him out at some point late round two or round three. I like this prospect. I think he's going some places. At the same time, I understand the people who are on Rodriguez. This is going to be the third dog we're on here in the main card. So we're going dog hunting this weekend, which I love. That's plus money is where I want to be at. That's the breakdown, guys, in this fight. As usual, please like and subscribe. Thanks for stopping by. Give me some feedback. Am I crazy? Are we off base? Am I missing something here? Thank you for stopping by. Good luck on this card. Peace. Next up, we have a lightweight clash at 155 pounds between two international fighters, Armand Zorukian from Armenia and Joel Alvarez from Spain. Mijente, Mr. Alvarez, goes by El Finomino, and he is pretty phenomenal. We're going to talk about his tapology. He's 19-2 overall, 4-1 his last five fights, about to be 29 years old, 6-3 in high with a 77-inch reach. He trains out of the Tibetan Sports Center in Spain. As for Mr. Zorukian, he's 17-2 overall, 4-1 his last five fights as well. He's currently based out of Russia, but he's done some training at Tiger Muay Thai. He's also done some training at American Top Team in Florida. But his camp right now, he's doing that camp out of Khabarovzov MMA. is a smaller gym with no notable fighters there in the far eastern part of Russia. Mr. Zorukian is 25 years old, 5'7 in height with a 72.5-inch reach. So size-wise, it's pretty notable. Joel's going to have about a 5-inch height advantage and about a 5-inch reach advantage. You can imagine Zorukian is a little more of a stockier wrestler type of build, whereas Joel Alvarez is much more of a longer fighter, like the likes of Steven Thompson or Nate Diaz, that kind of fighter, much more of a longer reach, longer arms, longer legs, which plays into the, his BJJ skills. Now, looking at the tapology votes coming in for Zarukian, 61% for Zarukian, 40% approximately for Alvarez. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense is that minus 310 money line. We have to punish the books here. Even if you think Zarukian's going to win the fight, there's no way minus 310 is a valid money line for this type of fight. If you don't know who Joel Alvarez is right now, you're going to know by the time I'm done this breakdown. The dude is legit. He's one of those guys who's floating below the radar, but his numbers are not to be ignored. This fight, in my humble opinion, should be more like minus 150 for our Manzurikin, almost even a 50-50 fight. We're going to talk about it. You're going to see what I mean. We've got to punish the books here. Minus 310 is way out of control. Looking at the striking numbers here for Zorukian, he's landing just about three and a half strikes per minute, absorbing 1.4. Excellent ratio. How does that happen? He gets on top of guys. He grinds them. Hard puncher. His ground and pound strikes are very, very hard. For Joel Alvarez, he's landing just about four strikes per minute, absorbing 3.34. Eh, not so bad. About the same output, about the same volume. For takedown offense, Rizorukian's landing just about 3.38 takedowns per 15 minutes, whereas Joel Alvarez is landing zero takedowns. Not part of his game. Now, with that said, he gets to the ground often. He knows how to get to the ground. Doesn't mind pulling guard. He's very crafty. Now, for takedown defense, 0% for Alvarez. And for Zorukian, 78%. Not easy to take Zorukian down, but I don't see Joel Alvarez trying to take him down. He'll just welcome the guard and pull him, and then from there, he'll start working his BJJ skills. Now, looking at the background of the two fighters, let's talk here first about Aman Zorukian. He was born in Georgia. He's got Armenian and Russian nationality. I'm going to give a shout out to my Armenian friends. My wife's best woman for her wedding is Armenian, and she's also the godmother of our kids. If you don't know, Armenians are just, they're Russians, basically. It's like a Ukrainian. They're Russians or a Georgian. So he was born in Georgia, but he's actually Armenian and Russian. You see how that all overlaps there? He's a master of sport and wrestling. He had a 3-2 and two amateur career. He won fight of the night versus Islam Makachev. He won performance of the night versus Christos Chiagos. He's trained a few spots. He did American top team in Florida for, for a fight. He did Tiger Muay Thai for a fight. He conducted his most recent camp in Kabatazov 
Russia. It's a small gym. I couldn't find much about it. When you look up the gym on Tapology, he's the only listed fighter there. Not surrounded by top-level talent, but who knows? Maybe, you know, some guys like to be the big fish in a small pond. It works better for them. Maybe the training is more focused on them. So we'll see what happens here. I do want to note, when he fought out of American top team, he did miss weight coming out of that camp. His most notable opponents, he's fought Islam Makachev, and they went to the full distance. Now, Islam Makachev, he is on a tear. The dude's amazing. That is a very good loss for Armand Zalukian. Some people are saying they should maybe fight again, but the point is, it went the full distance. Islam could not submit him, which bodes well for Zalukian in this fight because you figure Joel Alvarez, at some point, if the fight gets to the grappling, ground, standing guillotine, that's all going to be there. He's very tall. He'll be at least attempting some submissions here against Zalukian, who's done a good job defending against the elite level guys like Islam Akachev. He beat Matt Frivola just last year, 2021, by decision. In that fight, he just simply out wrestles Frivola for three full rounds. And every time that Matt Favola would try to get up, he would just return his ass back to the mat. He showed good cardio, good pressure and pace. He was all over Favola for three full rounds. Very easy three-round decision. Kind of boring, but the point is he dominated. Against Christos Chiagos, now that was interesting. Just last year, he knocks him out in round one. He hits him with a very quick left hook. Like inside, just quick left hook. From there, Chiagos falls down. He gets on top of him, and that's one of the things that Armand Zalukin does well. When he's on top of a guy and needs to like land some hard strikes, let me make the comparison. Remember the Buckley fight the other day with Al-Hassan? Everyone believes that Al-Hassan won the last round. He wrestled, did some good things. But I remember in round two of that fight specifically, you had Buckley down almost on all knees, and Al-Hassan's like throwing these wild big punches to try to hit him on the side of the head. He's missing, getting off balance, and he allows Buckley back up. That's not what Armand does. If Armand has you like almost face down and you're kind of balling up, He's going to rain down some heavy shots. He's accurate, he's powerful, and he's got pretty good cardio. The things I like about Armand Zorukian, he's on a four-fight winning streak. He's a very active fighter, averaging just about two and a half fights per year. He fought twice last year, once in 2020 and twice in 2019. He is an excellent wrestler. His foundation clearly is in wrestling. You can see it. He chains together takedowns. What I mean by that is he gets a guy down. The guy's about to think he's going to get back up, and he lets them kind of do it, and then just bam, returns him to the mat, does a great job chaining together different takedown opportunities, and it stays on top. He likes the top position. He's a nonstop wrestler, and if you're fighting against him and not prepared for that, it can be exhausting. I'll explain to you how that plays into the strategy for Joel Alvarez, though. Some more positives about Armand. He's very durable. He's only been finished one time in his pro career, and it was way back 2015. It was his second MMA pro fight. My concerns for Armand. Limited finishing ability. He's got a 45% finish rate, and all those finishes were kind of a while ago. Four of his last five fights have gone to decision. He's got limited BJJ skills, which is interesting. People think, oh, wrestler, grappler, take him down. He does not have BJJ skills. He did show good defense against Islam, but he doesn't have BJJ skills from the standpoint of offense, submitting guys. He's getting decision wins for position control and ground strikes, but not through submissions. He missed weight versus Favola. Interesting, because these guys both have missed weight recently. We'll talk more about Alvarez missing weight in his last two fights. He can be very one-dimensional very one dimensional at times. That's Armand. And typical wrestler who he's wrestle, wrestle, wrestle heavy. If it doesn't work for him, he kind of comes up against, doesn't have really other options, right? Not an amazing kickboxer, not an amazing striker. In this fight, does he take Joel Alvarez down? Yes. Joel Alvarez has 0% takedown defense. But will that be enough? Can he then execute you know, a submission? Can he get enough ground strikes? So on top of being one-dimensional with Armand Zarukian, he also has to be careful he doesn't get to the point where he fatigues himself. Now, you can imagine these guys are wrestle, wrestle heavy. He showed in the past that he has good cardio. But still, if you're wrestling, you know, you're going after it for three rounds, it does become taxing. Here's a guy like Joel Alvarez, doesn't mind working from his back. He'll get a chance to get a break, breathe a little bit. And if Armand's working too hard, he might gas himself out going into round three. Let's look here at Joel Alvarez, the Spanish fighter. Born in Spain, he began mixed martial arts at the age of 18. So it didn't have like a foundation of Muay Thai or Taekwondo or wrestling as a kid. A friend of his comes to town. He's like, I'm going to be going to the gym, man. Come join me over there. Let's go work out together. He's like, eh, whatever, I'll go work out with you. Immediately fell in love. 
that was it. Like stories of how he's like, I would bring weights home from the gym so I could train at home and I just fell in love with it. He fought predominantly in Spain in the first part of his career. He went 15 and one. He's a former lightweight champion for Angzar Fighting League, which is in Spain. Probably not the most competitive league, but whatever. Traditional right-handed stance. His most notable opponent, he fought Demir Ismagulov, lost to him by decision in 2019. It was a quality loss, though. Look at Ismagulov's background. The guy's got, he's on a 17-fight winning streak, and he's 4-0 in the UFC. Tremendous record. So that loss, just like Armand's loss to Islam Makachev, quality losses, and going the full distance didn't get finished. Against Diablo Moises. Now, here's when Joel Alvarez starts to get in the map. If you didn't watch this fight, I implore you, watch this fight. Before you bet on this fight, you have to watch his fight against Diablo Moises. He came to that fight one pound overweight. He puts the pressure on Moises. He starts landing front kicks, front knees. He's landing volume. He's fighting in a way that's sort of evolution for him. He's usually kind of more, more patient, backing up, pulling guard, getting submissions. He overwhelms Moises, starts landing some really hard shots. The fight gets stopped on the feet. Moises just not returning shots, body shots, knees, everything, head kicks. He displayed a whole array of striking there. He looked like he's really grown. The evolution has been now sharp for him. He's getting much better. That was a dominant performance, no matter how you look at it. Now, Moises is on a two-fight losing streak. I get it. But Moises also went to four rounds with Islam Makachev. Four rounds, he got submitted in round four. But the point, he went four rounds with Makachev. He could survive one round here with Joel Alvarez. So Joel Alvarez has one of the most amazing finish rates. And you can say, oh, regional scene, whatever. No, even in the UFC, the dude's finishing every single person he comes across. Matter of fact, he's got 19 total finishes in his career. It's 100% finish rate. 16 of those by submission, three by knockout, seven via triangle choke. He's finished all four of his UFC wins, two via sub and two via TKO. Only been a decision one time in his life, and that was against Demir Ismagulov, and he lost that fight. He's a very long fighter, has excellent reach, and if you watch the Moises fight, not only is he good at submitting people, he's striking. It's a beautiful thing to watch. The guy's very long. He usually has a length advantage of most of his opponents because he is such a long guy. Solid jab. He follows the jab up with a right hand, and against Moises, he hits him with a jab, and Moises is just adjusting to the jab, and boom, the right hand comes right behind him. Excellent BJJ skills from his back, and I want to emphasize this part. Here is why. I think at plus 145 or plus anything here, you got to take a stab at Joel Alvarez. Watch him when he works from his back. Watch the fight against Alexander Yakovlev. In that fight, Alexander takes down Joel Alvarez early in round one. He's on top of him. Alvarez starts to land some mean elbows. He's got those long arms, those sharp elbows. He's landing nice strikes. You can imagine this happening in this fight. Armand takes him down. He's on top. And Joel's like, no, no problem. I'll pull guard. I'm going to start landing some elbows. He forces Alexander Yakovlev to basically adjust position. And by doing that, Yakovlev goes right where he wants, and he ends up pulling armbar and getting the win in round one by submission. It was a beautiful thing. So this guy is dangerous off his back, very, very dangerous from his back. And I imagine here you have Armand who wants to wrestle. He's going to look at the takedown. He's going to be in that situation. So if he does that against Joel Alvarez, he's going to be going right into the danger zone. Dare I compare Joel Alvarez on his back to those of like Charles Oliveira? Like he's that dangerous. And I think we're going to see it this weekend. Things that I don't like about Alvarez are my concerns. If he doesn't make weight for this fight, he might be forced to move to a different weight class. He's missed weight in back-to-back -back fights. Granted, it was one pound, one fight, but uh, that has to be shored up. Here's a guy who has aspirations, wants to do the right thing. It's not good to miss weight. It's frowned upon in the industry. It's going to force him to move different weight classes. If he can stay at this weight class of 155 with his build and his technique, future championship contender here, this guy's like that good. And look, I'm going to compare again. Zorukin, wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. Very one-dimensional. Yeah, he, he knocked out Christian Siagos. Yes, okay, or whatever. But when you look at Joel Alvarez, he's way more well-rounded, and he's growing, and he's getting better. He also can be easy to take down, and so accepting guard, pulling guard, we've all been there, right? You got your ticket in your hand, you're like, oh, I, I want this guy to win. And you're like, get up, 
get up, God damn it. Stop pulling guard. Don't accept to be on your back. And that would be the one thing that you have to be concerned about with Joel Alvarez is maybe he's too accepting of pulling guard and being on his back. And for long periods of time, that could result in either him getting caught with a heavy strike by Armand from the top, heavy elbow, heavy ground and pound, or just the judges saying, listen, you're on your back, dude. You're trying submissions, but ultimately you're on your back and you're losing the rounds for that reason. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Zerukian versus Jagos, Fervola and Makachev. We watched Alvarez versus Moises, Yakolev, Duffy, and Ismagulov. Those seven fights, as usual, if you're new to the channel, those seven fights and those seven links are down below in the description. So take a glance at those fights if you want to. It's part of our free video library. And the last few notes I have in the fighters side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, very similar. You got 17-2, 19-2. Cage experience, just about identical. Fighter IQ, I don't think there's a difference here. I think these guys are both, you know, trending upward. A loss here does not hurt either guy. If I thought maybe long-term, who's going to be the smarter fighter? Who's going to be the more round well-rounded fighter? I give that edge to Joel again because he could do both. He could fight in the feet. He could also fight in the ground, also from his back. Submission skills, the guy's very well-rounded. They have shown good cardio throughout their fights, even when they went to decision. So, for example, with Joel Alvarez going to decision with Ismagulov, he looked good in round three. For Armand Zarukian, he's looked good in his recent fights. Been to decision, what, four of his last five fights. Had some pretty good cardio. For finishing ability, yeah, I'm definitely on the side of Joel Alvarez. You know, it, the numbers clearly don't lie. The guy's a finisher. With Armand Zarukian, he's a winner. He's a winner, but it's more by position, you know, staying on top of his opponent, position control. Boxing, there's a clear advantage there for Joel Alvarez. I don't know what what he was doing between the last two fights, but when he came out there against Moises, the evolution was significant. Against Alexander Yakolev, you didn't see it because he pulls guard against submission in round one, but from the time he fought Damir Zmagulov 2019 to what we saw last year against Yago Moises, my gosh, there has been gigantic improvements in his striking game. He looks good. It looks natural for him. You know, he just looks very natural when he's fighting and when he's boxing and throwing punches. As for the grappling area, we got a stalemate here. I think these guys are both excellent grapplers. Is, is Joel Alvarez more dangerous in the grappling, more submissions there? Yes. But look, you can't ignore the power and the strength of the Russian-Armenian Armand Zarukian, who is master of sports in Russian wrestling. So he's a guy who's going to be hard to deal with. Could Joel Alvarez try like a bunch of submissions and not submit him? Yeah. So look, Armand's not going to be an easy out. Could it go to decision? Could it be the first time that Joel Alvarez wins a fight by decision? Maybe. Either way, punish the books here. Minus 310 is stupid. Now, maybe the line closes here by the time the fight opens. Maybe it comes down to like minus 220, 250. That's still dumb. Look at Joel Alvarez. Watch some of his prior fights. You tell me that I'm seeing this nutty. I do want to mention the few cappers I've already kind of looked at some films out there and see some breakdowns. I'm not alone. Uh, my position here is not alone. I'm not some genius. Most people that are studying mixed martial arts and watching film the way we do here at MMA Fight Club, they're seeing something very similar here. Minus 310 is way too chalky. I like Armand Zarukian. He's got a bright future. Only 25 years old. Same thing for Joel Alvarez. Just about to 20, 29 years old. With plus 145 money here on Joel Alvarez, I'm going with Mijente. Let me know what you guys think here. Give me some feedback. Do you like the breakdown? Not like the breakdown? What can we do to improve our stuff here at MMA Fight Club? We appreciate you coming by. And please, as always, like and subscribe. Deuces. Which way to go? Life in a fast lane, take it slow. Weed in the ground, we make it grow. Speed on the Up next in the main card, we have a women's bout in the flyweight division at 125 pounds between Brazilian fighter Priscilla Cachoeira and Ji Young Kim from South Korea. Kim goes by Fire Fist. She's 9-4-2 overall. 2-3 her last five fights, currently a favorite at minus 180 in the money line. She's 32 years old, 5'7 in height with a 72-inch reach. She's out of a syndicate MMA. As for Priscilla Cachoeira, she goes by Zombie Girl. It's a scary nickname. 10-4 overall, 2-3 in her last five fights. Currently a dog here at plus 155 on the money line. She hails from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. 33 years old, 5'7 in height with a 65-inch reach. So height-wise, these guys are identical. Reach-wise, Kim's going to have about 7 inches. We'll talk more about that because in a prior fight, she had like a 10-inch reach advantage. It didn't really seem to play much of a factor. As for Cachoeira, she's out of Piranha Valtudo for her gym. 
Looking at topology, the public votes here are coming in on the side of Kim, 66% to be exact, 34% coming in for Kashiwara. I actually like Kashiwara to win the fight. I'm going to make my argument. I think it's more so because of the money line. The plus money is a little bit attractive here to me. Whereas Kim, I, I do like her boxing. We're going to talk about it. I do like her prospects to win the fight. Now, looking at the striking numbers, Priscilla Kashiwara is landing 3.82 strike per minute, absorbing 6.97. Not a good situation. She's landing just under four strikes per minute, absorbing just under seven. So her stand-up defense, clearly not very good. Now for Ji Young Kim, her output and input is about the same. She's landing about five strikes per minute and also absorbing about five and a half strikes per minute. Now for takedown offense, neither fighter has a takedown here in the UFC. So zero takedowns for 50 minutes is what they're averaging. Takedown defense, Cashaware is defending at 65% rate and Kim 40%. So neither fighter is defending takedowns very well. If you watch Cashaware on film, man, she is I'm surprised it's 65%. I'm surprised it's not like 0% because she's not very good at defending takedowns, but that probably won't be a factor in this fight. Looking at the background information of the two fighters, let's talk about Priscilla Cachoeira first. I went on Wikipedia, you know, do some research, pull up some history on her. My God, some of this information on Wikipedia should just not even be there. It's just uh, it's a horror story. I guess her father like refused to acknowledge that it was his daughter. Like that's not my kid, you know, illegitimate type of thing. She kind of had a troubled childhood overall. She played a little bit of volleyball, got kicked off her volleyball team, and then her brother-in-law sexually molested her when she was very young. In her 20s, she became addicted to crack cocaine. I was like, excuse me? Oh my gosh, yeah, crack cocaine. She was on the streets, homeless uh, for years in her 20s, and her mom was able to create like an intervention, get her into mixed martial arts as a way for her to, you know, get a focus, ground her, and get off the drugs, and she was able to do that. She was in a relationship with a woman until 2018, so a few years ago, they split up, and it was because her partner was basically stealing her money and spending her money, ringing up her credit cards, so unfortunate situation for her there. And then this past summer, July 2021, it's an active, ongoing legal situation. News surfaced that her former girlfriend, the one who was stealing from her, was granted a restraining order against her. <laughs> so in response, Kashiwara and her attorneys filed some press, press charges against her for defamation of character and so on and so on. That's an ongoing thing. Probably not the best of situations to have going on in your personal life, but uh, she's been through a lot. While she was recovering from her knee injury, it's noteworthy that Vasco da Gama, one of the professional football clubs in Brazil, football meaning soccer for us Americans, they actually sponsored her rehabilitation. She was one to know as an amateur. She began her MMA pro career with an eight-fight winning streak. She signed with the UFC in 2018. Unfortunately, lost her first three straight UFC fights, which is so indicative of these regional fighters who do well in the regional scene, whatever it's M1 Global, KSW, South America. They go 8-0, 9-0, come to the UFC, boom, lose like two, three fights in a row. She's 2-4 and four overall in the UFC, uses a traditional right-handed stance. She's got a kickboxing Muay Thai background. I'm not sure that's very prevalent in the way she fights, but she's got that as a base. Her most notable opponents, she fought Jillian Robertson, 2021, just last year, lost that fight round one via rear naked choke. In that fight, you see what we're talking about. Her wrestling is just, it's just amateur. Um, she cannot defend takedowns. She doesn't sprawl. She can't stop a good BJJ practitioner from executing against her. She also was a plus 270 underdog in that fight against Jillian, so it wasn't like she was supposed to win. Against Shada Dobson, 2020, round one uppercut KO for the win. So very impressive there. Against Molly McCann, 2019 decision, loss. Against Valentina Shevchenko, the better of the two, the actual champion, 2018 Right, rear naked choke loss in round two. So when she fights people like Jillian Robertson, Valentina Shevchenko, people who can wrestle and grapple, she's just way outside of her element. The things I like about Priscilla Cachoeira, besides the fact that she's been through so much in her personal life, let's say her threshold for pain is very high, very mentally tough, and it kind of looks that way. When you look at her face and the way she's just, her posture, she looks like she's been through a lot, put it that way. She's got a good finish rate, 58% to be exact. She finished both of her UFC wins. So again, only two and four in the UFC, but those two wins were by finish. And that lends to the last point on her. I think she's a very hard puncher. Matter of fact, I think punching power is a little uh, underrated. In this matchup, though, unfortunately, Ji Young Kim has displayed a hell of a chin in the recent past, so I'm not sure that Priscilla is able to get to her. Now, looking at my concerns for Priscilla, she's got two wins in the UFC, 
I mentioned those, and they were both finishes, right? But they were Gina Mazzani, who's seven and five, Shayna Dobson, who's four and five. You combine those two records, you're talking about pretty much a 500 level fighter as the person that she beat. Not very impressive. Durability is also a question for me, Priscilla. Yes, she lost four fights in the UFC, but she got finished in two of those fights. So interesting enough, like six, you know, look, six total fights, four of them didn't go the distance for a 125 pounder. Female, very, very interesting. She had a winning streak before the UFC, as I mentioned, and like a lot of typical newcomers to the UFC, that winning streak ended as soon as she came into a higher level competition. Poor takedown defense. I don't, I can't say it enough. If, let's say, Ji Young Kim and her coaches at Syndicate decided, let's just at least attempt one or two takedowns, they're going to get them. It could be a decision, it could be a difference in a round, winning a round, maybe not winning the whole fight per se, but just winning a round by taking her down once or twice, having a little top position because Priscilla Cachoeira, you could take her down. And I'm talking to the females that are 125 pounds that are watching this video, which is probably none of them. But the point is, she's easy to take down. She's got weak BJJ defense. Doesn't make sense. She's from Brazil. You think Brazilians are born with BJJ, right? No, she's not very good with BJJ defense or offense. And I do want to mention that against Jillian Roberts, when Jillian Roberts takes her down and is trying to, you know, get the rear naked choke going, Priscilla starts to panic. And one of the moves that she tries, she tries to stick her fingers into the eyes of Jillian Robertson. And during that fight, I believe the commentating was being done by Joe Rogan. And Joe Rogan, like, got all over her. She had grabbed the fence earlier in the fight, so he was like, oh, you know, she's a cheater. Uh, she grabbed the fence, and then she, she tried to put, gouge her eyes, and, and she also came in overweight, and he just, he just railed all over her. I mean, look, is what it is. If I'm getting choked out, I'm doing anything to get out of that, but it was a weird situation. Jillian was able to easily mount her full mount. She was able to easily take it to the ground. In this fight, could Ji Young Kim, at 32 years old, show a new feather in the cap and maybe get a takedown here? I don't know. If she does, I'm not surprised. Very poor fighter IQ. So what I mean by that, in the fight Priscilla Cachoeira fought against Jillian Robertson, she does tap out in round one. There's one second left. You can hear her corner screaming at her, you know, don't tap out, don't tap out. Obviously, we just had the Jamie Pickett fight against Kaldalkis. He taps out with like one second to go. But later on, he clarified it wasn't that he wanted to tap out. His tongue was between his teeth. He was concerned about like kind of biting his tongue off. In this situation here, just poor fighter IQ. And when you watch that fight back, there's like 40 seconds to go in the round, around there, and they're both on the feet. So it's like, okay, how does this happen? Yeah, she just gets easily taken down in bad positions, and all of a sudden, whoop, there it is. All right, as for Ji Young Kim, looking at some background information on her, she began kickboxing and wrestling in middle school and did that all the way up through high school. Southpaw stance, the adjustment here for Priscilla. She signed with the UFC 2017. She lost her first fight via decision. Her most notable opponents, she fought Molly McCann. So they've both fought Molly McCann. They both lost to her by decision. In the McCann fight, I would really encourage you to watch that fight. As usual, if you're new to the channel, the link for the fights that we're talking about are in the description below. Ji Young Kim goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Molly McCann. Meatball Molly McCann, who's tough, throwing big punches. And Ji Young Kim took a lot of those punches very, very well. The one thing about Kim, she's easy to hit, as you can see from her striking numbers, right? 5.47 strike per minute she's absorbing. But she doesn't like, um, she does that thing where she goes with the punch, right? So if you hit her here cleanly, she's not going to just like stay there and look at it. She's going to go with the punch. She's going to go away with it. So even though she's taking some hard punches, she takes them very well. In that fight, if you recall, McCann inadvertently headbutts Kim. She's like, so McCann comes in like, you know, a bulldog. She headbutts Kim and McCann hits the ground. <laughs> she does the thing like uh, Kevin Holland did when he fought Dalkus, where the headbutt happens and then she's like, oh, <laughs> right? So she hits the ground. It looks like a flash knockout at first. When you replay it, you hear the announcers, it was a headbutt. But here's my point. When she headbutted Kim, Kim was like, unfazed by it. This girl can take a punch. So if you like Priscilla Cachoeira, you think she finished the fight by TKO, check yourself on that one. Ji Young Kim has a hell of a chin. Her other notable opponents, she fought Alexa Grasso, lost that fight by decision in 2020, and then she fought the lesser of the two Shevchenkos. She fought Antonina Shevchenko in 2018, 
lost that fight by decision. It should be noted, all three of those are decision losses. Ji Young Kim has never been finished in her MMA pro career. I want to mention it again, she went toe-to-toe -to -toe with McCann. If she goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Priscilla Cachoeira, I'm not worried about Ji Young Kim. I think her striking output, her numbers, probably that's where she beat Priscilla, a little more accurate. Now, the long reach, let's talk about this. In the fight against McCann, Ji Young Kim had a 10-inch reach advantage, and she still loses that fight. Watch the fight. Do you know it's 10 inches until someone tells you? Because when I look at the fight, just running it through without knowing that stat, I'm like, okay, maybe her arms are a little longer. She's a taller fighter. She's longer. Meatballs more, you know, thicker. Yet, Molly's able to get in there and close, land a lot of punches, and she gets a decision win. So it didn't, wasn't a big factor. Here we have seven inches. I don't think it's going to play a big part of the fight. High volume striker. I mean, look at the output's about five strikes per minute. Now, my concerns for Ji Young Kim, she absorbs too many strikes. That's what we just talked about, right? She's taking in about 5.47 strikes per minute. Her output's 5.04. A little bit more. She's receiving and she's dishing out. Not a very active fighter either. She's averaging one fight a year, like fought last year once, once 2020, like once 2019. She's fighting now, early in 2022. Maybe she'll register two fights this year. She holds her chin very high. It's one thing she's taller. Okay, that makes sense. She's taller, longer fighter, right? She's going to be 5'7 in this fight, but usually she's the taller fighter in most of her matchups. She was taller against Molly McCann. Her chin's just right up there. So Molly McCann, who's not the most accurate puncher and throws some kind of, you know, wild shots and doesn't have the best boxing technique, she was able to easily hit Ji Young Kim. Kim needs to bring that chin down a little bit. We bring her guard up. Just defend against those punches to clean it up, make sure she's winning on the scorecards. Willing to trade punches. That's another thing about her that she's got to shore up. She's got a chin. I think she knows that. She's not worried about these girls hurting her. So she'll stand in there and she'll go back and forth. In the Molly McCann fight, at the end of the fight, these two were just trading. And McCann's like, let's go right here. And they were going back and forth. And each punch when they were landing, you were like, is that going to be the punch? Is that going to be the punch? And both of them took them very well. So again, Ji Young Kim has a very impressive chin for a 125-pound female fighter. The fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Ji Young Kim versus McCann, 2021. We watched Ji Young Kim versus Grasso, 2020. Kim versus Shevchenko, 2018. That was Antonina Shevchenko, that is. For Priscilla, we watched her fight against Jillian Robertson last year and also her fight last year against Gina Mazzani. And for anyone who's new to the channel, we have a free video library for every video breakdown we do. So if you go to the description below, you're going to find five links for five prior fights that we discussed. Now, the last few stats in the fighters looking at their side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, 10-4 for Ji Young Kim, 9-4-2 for Priscilla Kashiwara. Almost the same amount of time in the octagon. Fighter IQ, I think Ji Young Kim maybe has a, a slightly better fighter IQ because of the way that I've seen her fight. But then again, she can't wrestle. For Priscilla Kashiwara, she's missed weight in the past. She's done some things in the ring that can, or octagon that can cost her some fouls or some points. And last but not least, she has no ground game, no takedown defense at all. So I'm going to give an edge there, a slight edge to Ji Young Kim in the fighter IQ department. As for cardio, they both have great cardio. They both can go the full distance. This would be a three-round fight. Shouldn't be a problem for either one of them. Finishing ability. This is where I'm giving the dog a chance here. Priscilla Cashaware does punch very hard. Could this fight come down to Ji Young Kim lands more strikes, right? Technically lands more. But we have the bigger looking wow moment from Priscilla Cashaware. This fight's being held at the Apex Arena, so it's not going to be in a full-blown arena with the crowds there and ooing and ahhing every punch. But let's just say the judge determined that, you know what, Priscilla Cashaware is just landing the bigger shot, the harder shot. She reminds me a little bit of Amanda Lemos, another Brazilian fighter who punches very hard. At 125 pounds, again, it can't be ignored that four of her six UFC fights have not even gone the distance. From boxing standpoint, I'm going to give the edge to Kim. This fighter here from South Korea shocked me. When I started watching film on her, I'm like, how did I forget how fluid her boxing is? You think of the Asian fighters as a mixed bag, right? Some wrestling, some archaic boxing at times. Kickboxing's good. The Muay Thai is good. The kneeing, the kickboxing, that tends to be really good in that part of the world. But just stand-up boxing tends to be a little raw. She's an amazing boxer. I mean, if she just focused on boxing and didn't do mixed martial arts, I think she could have some success. Hell of a chin, very fluid, a lot of output. My only concern with her boxing is the, how much is on the edge of her punches, how much power is there. I mean, she did hit McCann hard a few times, didn't seem to rock her. 
Whereas Kashiwara, she punches really hard. I think this is where, you know, in this fight, she has less output, but she lands maybe the better strikes. But boxing overall, who got the better technique? I'm going to lean towards Kim. And last but not least, the grappling department. Neither fighter's grappling. Neither one's going to the ground. It's a shame here because I think one of these two ladies could, let's say, shore up a round in this fight, maybe a, maybe two rounds, with a takedown, some top control, some elbows from the top. They're both terrible in the past at takedown defense and not very good on the ground. So you imagine if their coaches are working with them, listen, just take her to the ground at least for a minute or two in one or two of those rounds. It's going to help you secure the round. That would be an evolution here for either of the two of the fighters. That's the breakdown, guys. This is going to be tough to call. I imagine that price, that money line price of plus 155 for Priscilla Cashewara, that moves around a little bit. Maybe this fight ends up more or less close to a pick'em. I do like Kim as well. If this fight was as a straight pick'em, I maybe I lean towards Kim. But at plus one fifty-five, this is a ladies bout. Do you want to be holding a ticket for minus one eighty, two to one odds, and a close fight goes to decision, probably split decision, and it's all about interpretation here. Which judge thinks the harder strikes were landed? Which one thinks who had top control longer? Who had some cage control longer? This is not going to be a fight where like Stephanie Eggers last week made it real simple. She said, Joanne Clark, come here, grab the arm, boom, I'm a, I'm a judo master, and that's it. Anyway, that's the breakdown, guys. Look at this fight. Let me know what you think. I want your feedback. Am I crazy here? Should I be on the South Korean fighter? I mean, maybe I'm jaded. The one thing I'm thinking about, too, is 2021 was a ratchet year for Asian fighters. If you're anywhere from South Korea, Japan, China, Mongolia, anything from that far east, you were just not a good person to have on the ticket, and it wasn't because they weren't doing well. I had a few tickets where I thought those, those Asian fighters won. Anyway, long story short, I'm going with the Brazilian here. Good luck with the fight, guys. Thanks for joining us. As always, please like and subscribe. Deuces. Next up in the main card, we have a middleweight bout at 185 pounds between Misha Serkinov from Latvia, now via Canada, and Wellington Terman from Brazil. Now, Terman goes by the Prodigy. He's 17-5 overall, 2-3 in his last five fights. Currently a slight dog here at plus 105 on the money line. He hails from Cutaliba, Brazil, 25 years old. Six foot in height with a 72 inch reach, he trains out of Gal Ribeiro team. As for Misha Serkinov, born in Latvia, but now he's got citizenship, I believe, in both Canada and Latvia. So dual citizenship, dual nationality. Two or three in his last five fights, 15 to seven overall. He's now based out of Toronto, Ontario. But I heard in one of his prior fights that he does some of his camp in uh, Syndicate in, in Las Vegas. So he's kind of, I guess, between both spots. 34 years old in 11 months, about a full 10 years older than his opponent here, Wellington Terman. Not sure how big of a factor that'll play. Serkinov is in very good shape, but, you know, he is 10 years older. 6'3 in height, so 3 inches taller than Terman. 77-inch reach, so 5-inch reach advantage as well for Serkinov. And Serkinov is training out of Extreme Couture in Toronto, along with Syndicate MMA in Las Vegas. Now, looking at the numbers here on Tapology, Serkinov, surprisingly, is getting 83% of the votes here, only 17% of the votes coming in for Terman. I don't really get it. I I'm not saying that Wellington Terman is an amazing fighter. You start looking at Serkinov, though, woof, there's some red flags there. Looking at the striking numbers side by side, Serkinov's landing 3.77 strikes per minute compared to 3.04 for Terman, so a little bit more output for Serkinov. Though I would argue, on the feet, Wellington is more of a fluid boxer, better combinations, just looks better with his boxing. Now, he's not an amazing boxer, but he looks more natural. Misha Serkinov has that Rodolfo Vieira build, where he looks like Hercules, but that kind of build makes you appear robotic at times, right? So some of the movement gets robotic, especially when he slows down, whereas Wellington Terman, who's in good shape, Seems to be more fluid when he lets go of his hands. Now, strikes absorbed per minute for Serkinov, 3.08. Not bad. For Terman, 3.96. So not great that it's a negative ratio there with his output versus the input. Now, for Serkinov, he's landing 4.48 takedowns for 15 minutes. It's a key number for him. He usually doesn't go very far in his fights. He had a streak there, like almost seven fights in a row where he did not get out of the first round. But 4.48 takedowns per 15 minutes is an active wrestler. Clearly, that's part of his game plan. Now, for Terman, he's also wrestling a bit. 2.22 takedowns per 15 minutes. So both guys... 
should at least attempt some takedowns. Neither one of these guys, that's not far into them. Now, for takedown defense, Turman's got 100% takedown defense in the UFC in five total fights. Serkinov, 70%. Not bad. So both guys are defending at a pretty good rate. Now, looking here at the background of the two fighters. So Serkinov, as I mentioned, he's from Riga, Latvia. I got to mention that my wife, my beautiful wife, who is Russian, born in Smolensk, Russia, but her family, my in-laws, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, my niece, whatever, they're now all based out of Riga, Latvia. So shout out to Riga, Latvia, a former property or territory of the Soviet Union, and now part of the EU. So that also means my wife, myself, my kids, we have dual citizenship with EU and also United States. He now resides in Canada, has dual citizenship. He's got no amateur career. He made his pro debut in 2010, 12-year pro experience. He signed with the UFC in 2015. He won his UFC debut against Daniel Jolly, a round one ground and pound win. He finished his first four consecutive opponents in UFC. A very unique stat about him I mentioned before. From 2016 to 2021, he had seven straight fights that ended in round one. Now, during that seven-fight streak, he was three and four during that streak. It wasn't like he was finishing those fights. He was getting finished himself as well. He was kind of a volatile fighter during that streak. And then he went to decision against Jocko and lost that fight. His most notable opponents, he fought Johnny Walker. Johnny Walker, who just got completely slept last weekend against our, our guy Hill. So he fought him. In 2019, lost to him round one TKO loss in 36 seconds. Just kind of putting that out there. He also lost by TKO in round one 2017 to Glover Teixeira. Then he lost a split decision against Christoph Jaco in 2021. A very good fight. There was some moments there where you could see an evolution of Misha. He did a little better with his cardio. He managed his, uh, his, his output a little bit better. And his wrestling is very good. The problem I saw in that fight, it lends me to think that if the wrestling doesn't work for him in a fight... He becomes very one-dimensional. He's not great in the feet. He's got a little bit of a weak chin. So if his wrestling works, it's great. Powerful, quick, good takedowns. Very powerful. The guy's built like I mean, a Greek god. But if that doesn't work for him, and Jocko was doing a great job at defending those takedowns, it sort of wore out Misha, and Misha wasn't having very much success, basically, in that department. Matter of fact, that fight ends with Jocko taking down Misha pretty easily with like 10 seconds to go in the fight with the body lock. And you, you saw that happen. You're like, well, Misha was gassing out. And here's Jocko pushing the pace, taking him down now after something crazy, like 15 to 20 takedown attempts in that fight with Misha. And I think he only took down Jocko maybe once or twice in that 15 or 20 attempts. He's got a high finish rate. I was surprised to see he's got an 80% finish rate. He's finished 12 of his 15 wins. And again, it lends back to his fighting style. It's either finish the guy early or he gets finished early. His wrestling is very good. I think when he's fresh, early part of the fights, and he shoots with his full gas tank and everything, He's so quick and explosive. He gets it on the hips on a guy, double leg takedown. That guy is going down. I have to think that based upon watching film on him and Terman, he's probably the better wrestler. Now, grappling, uh, a little different. I've seen some good things from Wellington Terman. I've seen some good things from Misha Serkinov. But the flat out just taking a guy to the ground, I think Misha's going to have the edge in that department. I can see him taking the fight to the ground. Once he's on the ground, then you know we'll see what happens. He's very overpowering in the top position. You can imagine. The guy's built heavy on top, kind of thin on the bottom. If he's on top of a guy... It's going to be very difficult for Terman to get him off of him. My concerns with Misha Serkinov, he had a very hard time trying to get Jocko to the ground. I mentioned it before. In that fight, he became very one-dimensional, and he could not get Jocko to the ground. He loses by split decision. It's my opinion he lost that fight outright. Not sure where the split came from. But anyway, needless to say, he could not get him down. It ended up leaving him at a stalemate. He couldn't box in the feet with Jocko, and Jocko was piecing him up. His cardio isn't great. He's really strong, a lot of muscle, very muscly. And so I think that gasses him over time. It makes sense why he didn't go to the second round or third round very much over the course of that seven-fight period. If this fight goes later, i got to imagine Wellington's going to have a slight cardio advantage. Now, he's on a two-fight losing streak as well, which is never great. 
He's been inconsistent to say the least recently. He's two and five in his last seven fights, and he's had two wins in the last five years. You know, just putting it out there. I like Misha Serkinov. I'm, I'm not saying he's a bad fighter, but there's some there's some glaring issues there with him. When you look at topology, it doesn't lie to you. Durability. He's been knocked out four of his last seven fights. I mean, that right there is also glaring. Now, can one determine to knock him out? Maybe. Wellington's got some pretty good hands. He actually touched up Sam Alvey, you know, pretty good. He cut Sam Alvey really bad on the, on the Sam Alvey side with a spinning back elbow. And for Sam Alvey, you know, I criticize him a lot, but he does have a chin. He's pretty durable. He goes to decision a lot recently. So that was a good fight for Wellington Terman. He was able to survive the power of Sam Alvey or the theoretical power of Sam Alvey. By the way, let me get in my soapbox for a second. The next person that I hear says that Sam Alvey has KO power, I might lose my proverbial shit. Sam Alvey has one finish. In the last 15 fights he's fought. How, how can Sam Alvey have KO power? I mean, someone explain this to me. I hear the broadcast. And I like I like Bisbane, for example. But Michael Bisbane, in the fight with Sam Alvey versus, versus Wellington Terman, he references Sam Alvey's power and says, oh, man, I've I've shared the cage with him. You know, I've trained with him. He's got power. How could someone have KO power if they have one finish in their last 15 fights? He's 0-7-1 in his last eight fights. And then the prior fights before that, he went to decision like six of his seven fights. I don't know where this theory comes from that Sam Alvey is dangerous and he's had past power, but Sam Alvey does have a chin. Wellington Terman did crack him a few times in that fight, and I think if Wellington Terman hits Misha Sherkinov that, that hard, the way he hit Sam Alvey, that's where I th do think Sam Alvey's legit. He's got a chin. Misha Sherkinov has not displayed a good chin, and again, getting finished in four of his last seven fights. His last two wins were against very low-level opponents. He beat Patrick Cummins in 2008. 18, excuse me. And that's a guy who's 10, 10 and 7 overall. He also defeated Jimmy Crute. Now, Jimmy Crute started off like a, you know, gangbusters. He was 10 and 0. Now he's 12 and 3. We saw him fight Jamal Hill not too long ago, and Jamal Hill completely rocked his ass with a simple overhand right, I believe it was. Several overhand rights that he just, Jimmy Crute just did not adjust to. So that, that victory over Jimmy Crute is not aging well, in my opinion. He's so jacked up, like I mentioned earlier, that his movements become very robotic, especially when he gets tired. I feel like it just gets very clunky for him. And for Misha Serkinov, you want no part of having a ticket on him if this fight gets the second or third round. I just don't think he's going to be very durable in those situations. First round, takedowns, submission attempts, that's the window for him. Could he get a submission in the first round? Absolutely. He's powerful. He's strong when he's fresh. Not fresh Serkinov, not good Serkinov. Against Ryan Spann, Misha Serkinov. He had a hard time recovering in that fight. And I've noticed this now in other fights where he gets tagged but doesn't know how to, like, recompose himself. So if he gets tagged with a punch or two, he's got a decent poker face, but his opponent can tell he's hurt and he's not able to use his wrestling to survive. The same thing for Terman, by the way. I'm going to mention that when I talk about Terman's background. But Terman did the same thing in one of his recent fights where he got tagged and it's like, all right, dude, you have to adjust now. The Sanchez fight. He gets hit. He doesn't look really hurt. He's got a good poker face, but he doesn't adjust. And the guy just keeps hitting him with the same combinations. And eventually, he goes, like, unconscious. And that's one thing about Terman. His two most recent knockouts, he was sleeping. Like, bring out the Epsom salt. Wake this guy up. Like, this guy was out, completely out. Now, you get knocked out, get hurt, whatever. But sleeping is another thing. Like, waking somebody up off the mat. That's happened to him now twice recently. Let's talk about Wellington Terman, the Brazilian fighter. He began training as a Muay Thai fighter. So, he's got a Muay Thai base. And that was to lose weight, actually. This guy was, like, post-high school, trying to lose some weight. So he goes and tries to do some Muay Thai. I love those stories how people go to lose weight. Next thing you know, they're fighting the UFC. <laughs> I've tried to lose weight before. I'm not in the UFC. Anyway, he was a fan of MMA fighters like John Jones and Anderson Silva. Those are people he looked up to. That kind of motivated him when he was training Muay Thai to be like, you know what? Scrap the Muay Thai. Let me go to mixed martial arts. He's a BJJ black belt. 2-0 as an amateur. He went pro 2014. 
18 years old. So the guy is young. He's 25 years old, seven-year pro career. Oh, about to be eight. But the point is, went pro as a very young guy, making big strides, learning quite a bit. He signed with the UFC in 2019. He's got a two and three UFC record. Most notable opponents of his career for Wellington Terman. He fought Carlton Harris, pretty good fighter, back in 2016, about six years ago. Lost that fight via decision. That was Immortal FC6. He fought Sam Alvey. I've referenced that fight. That fight's annoying. Do not watch that fight, guys. If you want to waste about 15 minutes of your life, you'll watch it. The link's in the description, but don't do it to yourself. Just don't do it. He wins that fight by decision. He outboxed Sam Alvey on the feet, and he definitely outperformed him on the ground. And I want to make that clear because, yes, he lost two points in round three, and Sam Alvey was, like, all up in his panties. and like, uh, What happened here? Like, chill, dude. Like, stop trying to win fights on, on points technicality. Like, you lost the fight. You lost every part of that fight except for when the referee said, Two points away from Wellington Terman for being a meathead, which also goes to Wellington Terman. Fighter IQ, that fight had me a little freaked out to ever bet on Wellington Terman because he gets warned several times throughout the fight. There's no language barrier there. He knows what's going on. It's like seconds after he got the first point taken away from him, he gets another one taken away from him. He, doesn't even, he didn't poke Sam Alvey. It's just like he's got his hands. Like, oh, it's like, he's like this. He's like, hey, I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to poke him, ref. It's like, dude, get your fucking hands, close them up, and stop this shit. So that fight was bad for Wellington Terman from a fighter IQ standpoint. Not a good look for him. Against Bruno Silva. That's the fight I mentioned before when I talked about adjusting to when you get hit. Let me use the example of Anama, the very dark-skinned gentleman who just won in the UFC Vegas 48 card. And he gets cracked, right? He gets hurt. Okay, he's hurt. He's like pawing out his eye. Next thing you know, this long fighter who's known for striking actually starts to grapple on the feet, goes for a takedown, doesn't get it. But like, okay, look what he does. He's kind of mush it up a little bit, let him recover. Like blink your eye a little bit, you know, just get your shit together. He does that. He ends up coming out with a win, cracks him. Misha Serkinov and Wellington Terman are better wrestlers than Onama, but they won't do that when they get hurt. And for Terman in the fight against Bruno Silva, he's on the ground taking a variety of different shots. He's on his back taking some shots it doesn't look too bad but it's not great he's like he's kind of like fucking around with this guy and next thing you know silva just keeps hitting him with shots he's not adjusting and then he's slept slept on his back from ground and pound shots you don't really usually see that usually most guys will ball up or girls will ball up like they're like this and they're taking shots the tko comes in nah no nah. he's like i'm just gonna keep taking these shots to the face i'm gonna go to sleep now look at the fight against sanchez even worse he's on his feet against sanchez Sanchez and him squaring up they're hitting each other he just lands a few shots. You can see they're hard shots. Again, good poker face from Terman, but he does nothing to adjust. No head movement, no grappling. He takes a one-two combination, and he does the damn Johnny Walker. He's like sleeping on his back. He's done. Like he's sleeping before he hits the ground. Ugly-ass knockouts. Knockouts where you got to wake the dude up. Now, the things I do like about Terman, after I just broke it down like that, and I made it sound like I don't like him, he's got a pretty good finish rate. He's finished about half of his wins. Seven submission wins in his MMA career. He does work well in the body lock position, so if he can get a body lock on Serkinov, especially post-round one, like round two, round three, when Serkinov is tired, look, Jocko took down Serkinov easily in round three at the end of the round with a body lock, and you think a guy like Misha Serkinov should be a little more powerful than that? Nah. Once round two and a half, round three come around, Serkinov has showed that he does not have good cardio towards the second half of the fight. For Blunt to determine one more thing, he's a balanced fighter. I do think his striking attack is pretty good. Much better than Misha Serkinov. Wrestling-wise, that's where Misha maybe has an advantage in wrestling. Grappling, eh, very similar. But he's a balanced fighter, and at 25, could he make some changes? Could he be getting better? Could he be getting better right now than 35-year-old Misha Serkinov? I would say yes. Now, my concerns with Wellington Terman, I mentioned some of them already. He's 2-3 and three in his last five fights. He possibly might have some durability issues. He's been finished now in his last two losses, and they were nasty. He was sleeping. 
He doesn't respond well when he gets hurt. He doesn't make the adjustments. He doesn't have good survival skills. I mentioned before he's a 52% finish rate overall. But in the UFC, he has not finished a single fighter yet. Could he submit Misha Serkinov? I don't see that happening. Misha Serkinov, his arms are like tree trunks. He's a strong guy. I think it's more of a TKO finish if one can determine could do that because either Misha just sort of balls up and gives up, which he's done that before. Against Ryan Spann, for example, Misha Serkinov, he got hit a few times, didn't really adjust, didn't try to grapple or wrestle, gets on his back, and he's like, you know what? I'm not doing what Willing Determined does. I'm not getting knocked out. He just completely covers himself up. A few strikes, you know, on top of the hands or on top of the gloves, and the fight gets stopped by Herb Dean. So, looking at the fights that we reviewed to break down this film, we watched Serkinov versus Jocko. We watched Serkinov versus Span and Serkinov versus Crute. We also watched Terman versus Alvi, Terman versus Silva, Sanchez, and Perez. Those seven fights and those seven links are in the description if you want to watch those on your own as part of our free library here at MMA Fight Club. The last few stats I want to go over here in the fighters' side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise... These guys are just about equal. I want to give a slight edge, though, to Misha Serkinov because he's 10 years older. He's been on the earth longer, so maybe he's got a slight bit of life experience. Fighter IQ, both these guys are very low on my scale. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see here by the graphic, I have them like as a 1.5 out of 5 total rating on Fighter IQ. Why? I don't like the survival skills. When they get hurt, they're not using what their, their base is, which is wrestling and grappling. Uh, for, for Terman, that fight against Sam Alvey, Hard to watch him losing multiple points when the referee is clearly telling him, like, stop, put your fingers away. And it almost cost him the fight. Like, he did win the fight, but it was very low fighter IQ. And uh, for Serkinov, you know, I think, again, it goes back to cardio with him as another reason why I don't love the fighter IQ of these two fighters. Cardio, I'm giving an edge to Welling to Terman, but he's had some moments, too, where he got tired. I think for Serkinov, he's maybe even a, a step below. For finishing ability, you know, I'm going to give an edge to Serkinov. He does have some submission victories. I think if he gets in the right position in round one, he could finish Terman. At the same time, could he gas out and also give up a finish at some point later in the fight? Yeah. So finishing ability, I guess I'm giving an edge to Serkinov, but it depends on what version of Serkinov, right? Because round two and a half, round three Serkinov, he ain't finishing. Nobody. A matter of fact, he's getting finished at that point. Now for boxing ability, I mentioned before, Wellington Terman's actually a pretty good striker. It seems natural for him. And I think that's a part of his game. He's got to evolve. If he wants to have a good UFC career, like contend one day, or maybe not contend, but move up the rankings, get better at the boxing. And also find to the BJJ, of course, and keep working that. But the boxing is not bad. Again, if he hits Misha Serkinov the way he hit Sam Alvey, I'll give it to Sam Alvey. Sam Alvey got a little bit of a chin. He can take a punch. Misha Serkinov, not so much. And last but not least, the grappling category. Both guys are known as grapplers. You got the Brazilian jiu-jitsu background here. You got Misha Serkinov with his submission finishes. But I think grappling-wise, the actual technique, there's an advantage there for Serkinov. Whereas, again, we go to round two and a half, round three. Technique won't matter because he's going to be so fatigued. That's where maybe Wellington Terman has an advantage in the grappling department. With that said, guys, I don't know how to advise you from a betting standpoint. This is going to be one of the hardest fights to find a lean on. I thought I liked Misha Serkinov at one point because I watched the film and I'm thinking, you know, he's got grappling ability. He's so strong. Takedowns are clean when he's fresh. But then you watch him later in fights and you're just thinking you don't want to be holding that ticket if the fight gets out of round one. For willing to determine, anything's possible. Like in the fight against Sam Alvey, he was winning the fight. He was clearly winning. He won round one, round two, and tried to lose it in round three by doing his foolishness. So I don't like this fight. I don't want to bet in this fight. I got to choose a side. I'm going to choose Wellington Terman, a slight youth advantage. Maybe it's getting better. He's better on his feet. Otherwise, am I shocked if Misha Serkinov knocks his ass out or submits him somehow? No, I'm not shocked. But from a betting perspective, I want nothing to do with this fight. We'll talk about the props that are available for this fight in the prop show. I did the fight not go the distance is the first prop I'll be looking at along with the prop for Misha Serkinov by submission. We'll cover that in a weekly prop show called Pick Your Poison. Um, otherwise, guys, just a straight up here, I'm taking Wellington Terman to win the fight. Because it's plus 105, to me, it's not a dog or pass spot here. It's pretty much a pick em, right? Let me know what you guys think. Do you guys like Misha Serkinov? Do you guys like Wellington Terman? 
Am I crazy? I can't believe this right now is scheduled to be the co-main event. Things are getting thin out here. I love the UFC. I love all the different events, but this is getting a little thin out here. When you see Misha Serkinov and one determined as potential co-main event for any UFC-related cards. Good luck with this fight, guys. As usual, please like and subscribe. Deuces. We're up to the main event here for UFC Vegas 49. It's going to be a catchweight battle at 160 pounds between the American fighter, Bobby Green, and the Russian, Islam Makachev. Now, Bobby Green... You might recall, fought about four weeks ago. This is a fast turnaround for him. He's replacing Benil Dariush, who had a back out due to injury. Bobby Green goes by King. 29-12-1 overall. I am no math expert, but I believe that counts out to 42. This will be his 43rd total mixed martial arts fight. Quite impressive for a guy who's only 35 years old. He hails from Inland Empire, California. 5-10 in height for both fighters, and they both have about a 71-inch reach. For Bobby Green, he trains out of Pinnacle MMA. For Islam Makachev, he trains with the likes of Khabib Nurmagomedov, who he has known since he was a child. He's 21-1 overall. On currently on a nine-fight winning streak, he hails specifically from Machkala, Russia, which is in Dagestan. 30 years old, as we mentioned, the same height and reach as his opponent. And looking at the topology numbers here, it appears Machkala is getting most of the votes, about 80% to be exact, 20% coming in for green. The main line is also very much inside of Machkala, minus 720 to be exact currently, and plus 500 for Bobby Green. I imagine by fight time, it probably grows to like minus 800, minus 850, to even minus 900. There's no way Bobby Green stays on his feet for three rounds. At some point, Islam is going to probably wrestle him to the ground. Now, looking at their striking numbers, you can sort of see the way they fight. So for Islam, he's landing 2.21 strikes per minute. For Bobby Green, 5.93. Much busier, much more output when they're on the feet. If this fight goes three rounds on the feet, yeah, Bobby Green can win the fight. Now for Islam Makachev, look at his, his rate of absorption. He's absorbing 0.79 strikes per minute. How is that possible? You know why? He just brings his opponent to the ground. He hugs them, crushes them, submits them. They can't get no strikes off on him. Looking at a guy like Bobby Green, that number of 5.93 strikes per minute on the feet, that won't happen in this fight because Islam's going to drag him to the ground, squash it up, make it ugly, and grapple him. Now, for strikes absorbed per minute for Bobby Green, not a bad ratio again, 3.65. For a guy who's dishing out about six punches per minute or six strikes per minute, absorbing 3.65 is not a bad ratio. For Bobby Green, he's got some takedowns in his arsenal. He's landing 1.36 takedowns per 15 minutes, so about a takedown and a half per fight with a 72% takedown defense. Now, Islam Makachev is averaging just over three takedowns per 15 minutes with 88% takedown defense. It should be noted this is a five-round fight. Now, looking at the background information on the two fighters, Islam Makachev, his middle name is Ramazanovich. See that full name there, Islam Ramazanovich Makachev. That is a mouthful. He was born in Makhchikala, Dagestan, in Russia. Now, he was specifically born in a very remote region there in Dagestan. It's, it's referred to as the Northeast Caucasian Ethnic Group, it's an ethnocentric cultural area referred to as Lakia, and they refer to themselves as Laks. They actually have their own language. There's only 200,000 people in the world that are like actually official Laks, and he's one of those people. He grew up in a remote, remote village called Bershi. It was part of the Soviet Union. It's now part of Republic of Dagestan. As a kid, he trained there with the likes of Khabib Nurmagomedov. They actually grew up together. Originally, it was through Combat Sambo, and then eventually they moved over to mixed martial arts. Now, in 2010, he made his pro debut. He's been a pro for 12 years. He signed with the UFC in 2014, 10-1 in the UFC, five finishes in the UFC. 2016 Sambo World Champion. So even though he got into the UFC in 2010, he continued to work on his Sambo training. He's 2016 Sambo World Champion. He fought for M1 Global, part of the UFC. He has 10 submission finishes in his career. So about half the fights he's fought, he's finished them by submission. The most notable fights for him. The most notable opponents he's fought, Dan Hooker, Thiago Moises, and Drew Dober. He beat all three of those guys, his last three fights, by a submission. Kimura for Hooker, RNC for Moises, and a triangle choke for Dober. All three of those fights were in 2021. He had a very hot 2021. This guy is on fire. The things I like about Islam, 
Very active fighter. We just mentioned three fights last year. A good finish rate. Now, especially for this class, the 160-pound weight class, and he has a 62% finish rate. Very impressive. Ten submission finishes and three TKO finishes. He started his career 12-0. He's currently on a nine-fight winning streak and very durable. He's only got one loss in his career. It was an early round knockout in round one, 2015-ish. Kind of a fluke type of thing. I think he's got a pretty solid chin. Now, my concerns for Islam, he has beaten those last few guys, you know, Hooker, Moises, and Drew Dober. But he's not really been tested. He hasn't really been tested. Now, is Bobby Green going to be the test? I'm not sure that this is going to be the guy who's going to really test him. But the point is, he hasn't really fought a guy who, you know, could really take him to task. Let's put it that way. Now, Benil Dariush is a bit of a grappler. That would have been a better test here than Bobby Green, who's going to have a hard time staying on his feet. The only blemish he has in his career is the one loss he had by knockout to Adriano Martins in 2015. Otherwise, I think there's, just, there's still more to know about this guy. How about that? Like, I like Islam Akachev. He's got all the tools, looks great, great training, but he hasn't really been tested. And I'm not sure it's going to be the fight, but the point is there's still that unknown with him. Now, as for Bobby King, born in California, he went into foster care when he was five years old. I read this in his bio, his background. His father was unfortunately locked up. His mom was dealing with substance abuse. Now, he began wrestling as a sophomore in high school at A.B. Miller High School in Fontana, California. He's a two-time state championship qualifier. Not a state champion, but he qualified for states. He made his pro debut in 2008. He's had a 14-year pro career. He began his career 8-1. He fought for Strike Force before UFC. He signed with the UFC in 2013, started his UFC career 4-0. A round one KO win over James Krause was part of that group of 4-0. James Krause, you know... Not for nothing, he's always been a very well-respected guy. Knocked him out in the first round, actually. Some honorable mentions from the UFC. He once won submission of the night. He also got a performance of the night. And three times he was honored fight of the night. Green has three kids, so he's a father. The most notable opponents for his career. He fought Rafael Fazez last year. Lost by decision. But that goes to show you Bobby Green is durable on the feet. If he fights a guy who's a striker like Fazev, he may lose the fight. I mean, strike-wise, Fizev's amazing. He's, you know, world-class. But the point is, he can go in there with a guy like that, and he can go to full distance, which is impressive. Against Diago Moises, he also lost by decision, but it shows you again, he's durable. It's not easy to get him out of there. He can go the full distance with guys who can strike. Against Dustin Poirier, unfortunately, 2016, he lost by round one. But look, Dustin Poirier is pretty much like the top level, right? Elite-level guy. And then against Clay Guida, he won by decision 2020. Clay Guida, you know, decent-level fighter. The things I like about Bobby Green. He switches stances, so he'll give you a, le he'll give you a left handed stance, a right handed stance. His hands are down, a little awkward. You know, he's got like you know good shoulder movement, blocks a lot of punches with his shoulder. Doesn't have a traditional guard. He's not up here like this trying to block punches. He's very wide, very awkward. Great head movement, not easy to figure out. If you haven't fought a lot of guys, this guy's crafty and clever. That could pose a problem on the feet, just on the feet. I can't say enough because once the fight gets to the ground, that's Islam's world. As I mentioned, great head movement, very athletic, and he's also a very active fighter. At the age of 35, a guy who's fighting like three, four, five fights a year, it's impressive. In 2022, he's already fought two fights. It'll be a second fight. Last year, three fights. 2020, he fought four fights. Dude's literally averaging like four fights a year right now at this age. It's awesome, and it's contributing to the fan like push. You see people liking you know, the guy now. They're on his side. In the past, he was coming up short in split decisions. The last fight he fought in Texas, a live crowd, they loved him. You know, the crowd was behind him. He was motivated. He got the decision. <laughs> of course, that helps. But the point is right now, he's fighting a lot. People are getting to know him. He's coming off of a nice win against Nasrat Hakpras, which was just last month, four weeks ago. My concerns for Bobby Green. Listen to these numbers here. 11 of his last 12 fights have gone to decision. He's got nine finishes in his 42 total fights. So 42 total MMA fights, he has nine finishes. And he has three finishes total in the UFC over a nine-year period. Not knocking that guy. It's just not his style. And it seems to me... You know, like when Nate Diaz fights, you wonder sometimes, like, is he punching with full power? Like, he's kind of doing that thing Sean Strickland does. Like, just volume, 
tapping you. But then sometimes Nate Diaz will turn it on and then snap that jab a little bit harder. He'll snap the punch a little harder, and he'll hurt the guy. Does Bobby Green have that in his arsenal? I'm not sure, but he does have high volume. He touches the opponent quite a bit, and that's his path to victory. In this fight, he'd have to force it to be on the feet the entire time. But again, could he clip Islam Makachev? That's what I want to answer that question. Could he do to Makachev what happened to Makachev 2015? It would be totally against the, the trend here. Again, almost 12 straight fights for Bobby Green. Almost like a four or five year period here. The guy has gone to decision every single time, even when he loses, not just when he wins. So I don't see him clipping Islam Makachev. And I think his KO power is limited. He's fallen on the wrong side of a lot of decisions in the recent past. Now, the last two, obviously, he won a few fights here. He's doing better. But in recent past, he's had some split decisions where he did not do well. And maybe some fights where people thought he won, but the referees just didn't score him well. And maybe sometimes he does things in the ring that, you know, don't make it look good for him or maybe make it too close. But the point is, he's been on the wrong side of some split decisions. If this were to go to a decision, which would be unlikely, he'd risk being on the wrong side again and being on the ground too much. You know, ground control position going to Islam. And yeah, Bobby Green maybe wins a striking battle here. Maybe he has more punches on the feet. But once on the ground, it's going to be submission attempt after submission attempt, grind and grind and grind. He also tends to lose sight of his game plan. That's Bobby Green. What I mean by that is he comes in maybe with a game plan. But once he gets hit, once things change a little bit, he's he's all about show, man. He wants to get he wants to get after it. A little talking. You know, he's got the posture, changes stances. And I love it. I mean, he's a showman. He's got the whole beard, you know, shaved in a very unique way. I like the guy. I have nothing against him. But my point is, it tends to then slip away from the game plan. I can assure you, Islam Makachev has a game plan. It involves taking him to the ground. He's not going to get away from it. He's not going to, like, say after round one or at the end of round one, oh, I can't get a takedown. I give up. No, he's going to go to the corner, reassess, and get back out there and continue with the game plan. Whereas Bobby Green, when things start to go not maybe the right way for him, he just, he'll just start fighting. And I love it. He just starts fighting. He'll just start brawling with the guy in front of him. He's got a chin. He's got, you know, confidence in himself. The five fights we watched to bring down this film, we watched Makachev versus Hooker, Makachev versus Moises. Those were both fights last year. We watched Green versus Hakapras, Lakinta and Fiziev. Those two fights for Lakinta and Fiziev were last year. Hakapras was just last month. But nonetheless, those five links for those five fights, you'll find them in the description below. Please take advantage of our free video library. Now, a few more notes on the fighters, the side-by-side -side comparisons. Experience-wise, I'm giving an edge to Bobby King. I'm giving him pretty much the highest rating you can for experience in mixed martial arts. With a guy who's fought 43 total fights, or 42, about to be 43, i got to give him the edge there. Now, for fighter IQ, you know, I think Islam Makachev at 21-1 overall, he tends to make good decisions. You don't get to that mark, even with some, you know, UFC experience, unless you know what you're doing, you're training, you know what you're good at, you know what you're not good at. So, fighter IQ, about the same, and possibly when this fight's over, you want to give that edge even more to Islam. But look, Bobby King, 42 total fights, a fan favorite. I'm not going to knock him and say he's a dumb fighter. Just maybe sometimes does something's a little, little slippery out there. As for cardio, another thing about Bobby King, he can go the distance. <laughs> I just mentioned before, he's been to 11 decisions in his last 12 fights. He has no problem going the distance. He's got the cardio. He had a full camp before his last fight, four, four weeks off. He's ready to go. I'm sure he's going to be in great shape. He can go the distance if it goes the distance. And as for Islam Makachev, same thing. Guy's young, at his prime here and 30 years old. For finishing ability, here's where, again, there's a big difference. Islam Makachev has finishing ability. He's finished almost half the total fights that he's been in. Bobby King is not a finisher. Bobby Green's not going to knock out Islam. It's going to be a submission finish, probably a rear naked choke, some kind of Kimura, something. And at that point, you're going to see Islam now wrap up four fights in a row in the UFC via submission. For boxing, I give the edge to Bobby King. He's got an interesting style. It's awkward. He's fast. His hands are low. He doesn't block with his hands. He blocks movement with his head. Very crafty guy, very crafty veteran. And last but not least, the grappling aspect of this fight. When and if the fight gets against the fence, when and if the fight gets against the, on the ground or anywhere there's a grappling exchange, there's going to be a huge disparity there. Islam Makachev 
is an elite level grappler. You know, here's a former Sambo world champion. The guy is elite level. You know, he's been doing this for a long time. He comes from a very unique group of people who who grew up doing this, man. He's been doing this for, since he was a kid. If he gets his hands on Bobby Green, which he will, he's going to drag that dude to the ground. And unfortunately for Bobby Green, as much as I would love to see him upset Makachev, because Makachev's going to be around for a while. He's not going nowhere. It would be great to see Bobby Green upset him, right? And also that plus 500 would be nice to see if somebody can cash that on the money line. Bottom line is, it would have to be by decision. So you're going to imagine that for three rounds, Islam Makachev cannot get him down for two of those rounds. Not likely, not likely at all. I like Bobby King here as a, as a story, late replacement. I give him a ton of credit. He's coming in for, for Darius last minute. Love it, man. But Islam Makachev right here at minus 720 currently. If you want to parlay him right now or in the week, try to do that because by the time the fight comes around, this thing will be close to minus 1,000. And unfortunately, I've already heard some people telling me that this this whole you know card is not that great. It's been kind of you know patched together, not a lot of competition. And unfortunately, the main event here looks like a Bellator money line. Is what it is, guys. I do like Islam Makachev. Good luck with this fight. We'll talk about the props in our prop show later this week. Come back for that show. That's our pick your point. Right, we're at the end of the episode here. I'll give you a summary of our picks to win. Starting off in the top, we like Islam Makachev, Wellington Terman, Priscilla Cachoeira, Joel Alvarez, and Armin Petrosian in the main card. Now, if you're paying attention there, that's three underdogs we like in the main card. That's Cachoeira, Alvarez, and Petrosian. On the prelim card, we like Zurong, Josiana Nunez, Terrence McKinney, Alejandro Perez, Ramiz Brahamaj, and Carlos Hernandez. On the other card there, we like Alejandro Perez and Zurong as the two dogs. Now, the car, the fights we like, I'm sorry, the most, or the picks we have the most confident in, Islam Makachev. Well, you know, that makes sense. On the prelim card, we like Josiana Nunez, Terrence McKinney, and Ramiz Brahamaj. Those would be our four locks. So again, that would be Ramiz Brahamaj, Terrence McKinney, Josiana Nunez, and in the main event there, Islam Makachev. Good luck with the card, guys. We'll talk about our prop bets in our prop show on Friday, which is Pick Your Poison. So if you haven't been here before for that show, come on back. We talk about props. We give you a few parlays. Dive into like some light stuff there. Nothing too crazy. We'll talk about some violent spots, some over-unders. Thanks for joining us. Please like and subscribe. We'll see you guys soon. Good luck. Good night. And we'll see you guys uh, on the flip side. Peace.